Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wild Bo's triumphant return to the world of parahumans. I'm your host and once in future king, Matt Freeman, and this is my loyal subject, Dot, Scott. Uh, Scott, do your announcement thing. Yes, my lord. As you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of red flags, paranoia, and alien-based death powers as we analyze, interpret, and interpret this wonderful book. This week, we complete our game of catch-up, Matt. We're here. We're done. We're all caught up after we uh, finish this this three-hour podcast. <laughs> but we're here to talk about Arc 3, Glare. And uh, what did you think of this one? This is really fun. I mean, we got the we got the the tires spinning. We got to see some some of the powers of the of the Cape team that we can that we're I guess currently assuming is going to be our focus. Yeah, um, we get to we get a little bit more development along Victoria's arc of kind of finding a place for herself. Um, we got a really fantastic interlude, which which we're gonna dive into at the end. Um, yeah, just really really fun arc. Yeah, I like it too. It was. And I realized saying this two weeks in a row out of in two out of three arcs means maybe it's not the standard format anymore. But I think this is one that left the standard format, at least again, from what we're used to in in Worm, in that we didn't have our, our slow build up to a cape battle. Like we didn't have our traditional kind of act structure as we moved to the arc. It is it is a little different. Um, we have there's there's still an action scene in this, but it's more of a scrimmage. We spend a lot of time. This is another one of those character building arcs where we're just spending a lot of time getting to know these people and how they interact and how um their issues are very problematic even if our our protagonist sees but does but but kind of moves past very quickly these issues that are making themselves present in these characters um i liked it a lot too yeah we're definitely going to talk a lot about our protagonists um i suppose biases would be the right word yeah 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 and and yeah like you mentioned the the interlude it's it's great it's like if we could just spend 20 minutes on on those those six chapters those aren't that important right we'll spend the rest of the time on the interlude um no i mean i i think it's gonna be a lot of fun to talk about this i think it's wild bow playing in in another genre again and doing it in what i think is a really really fun way um so i'm i'm looking forward to that conversation yeah me too before we get into things, though, let's do some announcements. So, like you said, uh, we are wrapping up the um, catch-up portion of the podcast, and and from this from this episode forward, we're going to be uh, keeping pace with the story as it's released. So, there's going to be a change in in the format. Um, Scott, do you want to talk about our new our new segment that you thought up? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the new segment I'm coming up with is called "We Didn't Have Ward," <laughs> which is where we admit the parts of the story that we just got things flat out wrong. Um, And so the first entry in We Didn't Have Ward is when I said last week that Crystal Clear was a post-Golden Morning, post-Scion trigger. Um, You know, I could have sworn, like, I could have sworn I read this somewhere in the book. I went back over it again and again and read it, like, three times. It's like, no, it definitely says this somewhere. Um, it did not, it said it in the wiki, um, which not that I'm saying it was wrong, but it is currently unsupported. And therefore, um, I didn't, I didn't have word, Matt. I didn't have it. Yeah. And I think I may have read the same information, but on Reddit or something. So I was like, 
yeah, I, I guess that's right. But I don't remember reading that in the story. Yeah, so, I remember uh, you told me after we finished recording that you were like, I was going to interrupt you until you were wrong, but I wasn't sure enough to do that. Um, yeah. Turns out you you should have. Yeah. Well, oh, well. I'll. Yeah. Uh, that, that's going to happen over and over. So we'll yeah. just have to see. Yeah. The um, I, I guess the, the big thing with the format change, though, the one thing I wanted to lay out for you guys is we're basically always going to run an episode or a, a chapter behind just just from the way our recording schedule and the release schedule of the, the book chapters comes out, because it's a Tuesday night when we're recording this right now, but we usually try to record on Mondays and we just invariably have to push it back because we always um, take longer than we think we're going to on our prep. But uh, we specific we both specifically have things we like to do some Tuesdays of the month, so we know that Tuesday night is not always available for us. So with the chapters coming out on Tuesday and us not getting to record on Tuesday 100% of the time, we're basically forced to make a decision. And that decision is the episode that comes out Wednesday will have last week's Tuesday, Saturday, and then possibly Thursday if there's a bonus interlude chapters in it. Um, but it, But the episode that comes out Wednesday will not have the the currently released tuesday chapter in it it's just we had to make it cut off somewhere and that's that's where it is yeah i don't think that should be too painful no i don't think so either yeah all right that's yeah that's it for announcements all right let's get into it all right we begin arc three with uh arc three glare with 3.1 we have victoria musing on the city of new brockton and how the whole city exhibits the tension between the desire to move forward and with the legacy of what was lost. So the city, in her words, sits on the brink between relevance and ruin. Downtown was still where downtown had been, a Lord Street stabbed north to south through the settlement. Despite the attempts, it wasn't home. It came from something different. Yeah, I really I really like how this opens, Matt. Um, I, I like the idea that cities get second chances too. And I think we, we see in this this part at the start of the chapter that new brockton is both taking advantage of those second chances but also you know kind of falling back into some of the same old habits as well uh we see we see a brockton bay whose whose industry has been revitalized uh the port is being used again danny's dream has been realized in a different dimension (laughs) yeah but uh and there's these these words about how uh like the rest of the city has kind of ground to a halt due to strikes and labor disputes but but new brockton is still chugging on but uh but yet old habits die hard um Mm -hmm. this idea that already back to the ways of an era that predated me cutting corners to produce more at a cost to tomorrow and that's that's very much like look they've changed they've revitalized but but look at this this stuff in our past that's kind of pulling us back a little bit and that's very much kind of to me the central theme of of not only the book so far but something we're really talking about in this in this arc as well this idea that we're really pulling at the idea of second chances a lot here there's all these characters in in our uh, misfit toys group that are in the middle of of trying for their second chance there to to do something new to redefine themselves to become something new and and we're we're pulling at that and testing at that with our main character who is noticing this problematic behavior with them yeah, I like that you can interpret it as this is what's this is what's actually going on, and you can also interpret it as this is a little bit of Victoria projecting what's going on with her onto the city. Uh, I think yeah. both are true. I, I don't think she's just protect, projecting, but, but it is clearly her 
enunciating her views and the theme of the arc. Yeah, I think that's that you're absolutely right. We have we always have to remember we're in her head. It is not a fully objective viewpoint. We are seeing the city how how she is seeing that. And and yeah, it's it is this perfect kind of stand in for that conflict that's raging inside her too. How how much like where do we draw the line at at second chances? How do we draw that line? Who gets to make that decision? All these things are things that she's battling with both with herself and with how she sees the world at large. And yeah, it's a it's a perfect reflection of that. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, so she walks on into what we gradually realize is the hollow point area, which uh, she refuses to call by that name, as we'll see. She mm-hmm. continually calls it throughout this as, as Cedar Point. Um, and she's walking on foot, and she's following a series of instructions. Go the way the wolf and his cubs are looking. Walk beneath the leaping rabbit. Follow the snake. And eventually she arrives at her destination, an open plaza. And there she waits a while. Uh, between 15 and uh, 40 minutes, depending on what genre of music she likes. Uh, <laughs> after which, Tattletale arrives. Yeah, Matt, that's kind of a, a fun game. What what kind of music do you think Victoria likes or would be listening to? Going to guess pop, but uh, I don't know. That's probably right. Is there is there is there up to date pop music in Earth Gimmel? Is there are new singles being released in this world? Probably. Yeah. Yeah, art stops for nothing. That's true. Especially in hard times. So, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I don't know how how the marketing and distribution of that those songs are going, but hey, they have internet, so Yeah. They have uh, one kilobyte per hour internet. <laughs> it's like it's like back in the old Napster days. Yeah. Yeah. So we see we see our our good friend Tattletail. She's finally here in the flesh. And she's got a new costume with darker, more dignified colors, more stately. Uh, and it's pretty clear that Victoria doesn't like her. Uh, she's thinking uh, it kind of smacked of narcissism, I felt, to wear one's initials. Uh, of course, Tattletail is joined by a flock of birds and a bodyguard. And she herself looks slightly unkempt. So Taylor Shard Baby, somewhere around here, right? That's what yeah, the birds I mean? I think yeah. so. I, I liked Tattletail's costume change. I think that's really, really cool. Um, and... <laughs> I think it's it's ironic that Glory Girl, the the girl who formally put a golden crown on her head, is accusing someone else's costume of being a little narcissistic. Um, yeah. Well, but you see, she's, she's grown. She's changed. Yeah. 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 Um, I I do like like that it's immediately transparent like how much she hates her like it's it serves as a good refresher of this very antagonistic relationship that we saw in the last book um, and. And one of the crazy things to me, and, and one of the things we're talking about with these these inherent biases and these perspectives that Victoria has is because we're in her head, they kinda they kinda maybe work on you too. Like there's there's points in this where I'm like, yeah, Tattletale's being really annoying here. And it's like, wait a minute, I I love Tattletale. What's happening? What are you doing, Victoria? Yeah, and again, it's our our thing where the first chapter tends to set up the themes because Victoria is systematically biased against some people. We'll see a, a two or three different people in this in this arc who qualify for that, and yeah. and rather rather consistently biased in favor of other people or or other types of people, depending on what, you know sort of how she relates them to herself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Tattletale, once she arrives, she says she'll give Victoria fifteen minutes, and she keeps calling her Vicky, which is, of course, she probably knows exactly how annoying that is to her. 
um, and she tells her the only reason I'm giving you the time of day is hometown respect. That's an interesting point. Like, I type Vicky a lot on these notes because it's mm-hmm. shorter, but it feels very weird to say that. Like, it feels yeah. very weird not to say Victoria. That's her mm-hmm. name. Like, so yeah, that's sick burn, tattletale. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is like also undoubtedly not true. Like, the only reason she's giving her the time of day, like, this serves to give Tattletale some information too, right? Like, Tattletale can probably actually get more information from Victoria here than Victoria can get from this conversation. So she probably benefits from it more. Yeah, I don't think Tattletale would give a crap about hometown respect, honestly. Mm-hmm. Just doesn't seem like her character. So it's, it's got to be ulterior motives, like you said. Yeah. Um, and of course, Victoria points out, uh, I couldn't help but notice your use of glory hole seemed unnecessarily antagonistic. <laughs> she leaned against the wall by the cat's head and smiled at me. One, I'm unnecessarily antagonistic. <laughs> True. Yeah. True. I just, it's, I just like that because yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. It's, and, and it's true. Like, like if you go back to worm every time, every time Tattletail had to take point, even if it were, even if it was a situation that should have been handled with delicacy, she behaves exactly this way. Yeah. Uh, well, well, part of her strategy is to, to poke the bear yeah. and then hope that by doing that, the bear reveals information about itself. So like put you on your heels by, by being that antagonistic and then see what kind of information you spill. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Tattletail continues to explain in an overly condescending way uh, that she's that everything she's doing is designed to serve multiple purposes. She's simultaneously telling us some information about Hollow Point while she's doing this. It's a place where itinerant and teamless villains have settled and agreed to follow basic rules. Yeah, and I don't think we've ever seen specifically something to confirm this, but did you get the idea that that, that the, the Hollow Point area is related to that giant, like, planned, it uh, alluded to villain team-up we saw discuss back in that arc one interlude um was that just me that thinks maybe those two things are related i I didn't actually i didn't actually get that but uh it sounds very plausible um it it makes like now that you say it i'm like well it does seem um you know chekhov's gunish to to have brought those to have brought those villains up in the first place right Mm -hmm. so especially since we see later in the arc that these are the ones that uh, our team is going to be going directly against them. So it it would make sense to have have that be people that we recognize. But of course, it could be something totally different. We don't act, there's no actual confirmation or or even like even way you can read into or speculate that very much other than hey, th- there was a reason why we learned who these people were, but we'll see. Right. Yeah, we'll see. So basically, Tattletale is trying to warn her off to go, get her to go pick on another area to mess with um and Victoria asks, where else would you suggest? And Tattletale doesn't have an alternative. We get this sense of Hollow Point as a villain territory that's small and weak in the grand scheme of things, but well-connected and resourceful enough to destroy Victoria if she tries to go against it. Um, and uh, at this point, Victoria kind of is accusatory, says, four years and you haven't changed a bit since you raided that bank. When we robbed that bank, I was doing multiple things all at once, laying groundwork for moves I wouldn't make for weeks and months. If I haven't changed from that, I think I'm doing okay, she said. I, I pulled this out because I just like this, The you know, Tattletale, we, we know she bluffs, but I'm not sure how much of this is a bluff. Like, yeah, Tattletale did eventually make some extremely aggressive moves in Brockton Bay, 
but I didn't think that those plans were in motion or even in her head until after Leviathan when Taylor rejoined the team and they kind of decided they were going to go against Coil. Yeah. But, but yeah. I wouldn't put it past her to have had certain plans in mind even before that. So I, I'm just interested to to think about this. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I don't know, this is unusual um, for, for our show <laughs> format, but there was this comment on something Everything's awful. changing, Matt. Yeah, rhythms. Yeah, that's right. We're we're shaking things up. <laughs> there was a comment on the something awful uh, Wildbow thread by uh, user Necromonster, um, and it's a very interesting interpretation of what Tattletale is doing in this scene. And uh, and I'm going to read it because I think it's very thought provoking, even though I don't necessarily agree with it. So so here here it goes. Basically, uh, Tattletale basically urges Victoria to do this thing. Tells her why she wants Vicky to do it without giving any details. Warns her of the possibility of failure. Tells her she can't help Victoria and may have to oppose her. That Tattletale opposing Victoria is actually the better option for Vicky. Reminds Vicky to rely on others, going so far as to give a big hint as to who Tattletale thinks Vicky should rely on. Reminds Vicky that her aura is actually her best and strongest power, while warning to avoid abusing others with it. And she even gives Victoria a hint as to what the people in the point might be capable of by telling Vicky it's dumb to keep her shield down. And all this is done in the most antagonistic goddamn way possible because Tattletale really doesn't like Victoria very much. <laughs> um, yeah, so so like I said, like I, I'm used to things going over my head and having you or other people get them. Um, <laughs> but this went over to my head to the extent that I'm not even sure that Tattletale was doing any or all of the above. But it was really cool to, to think about like whether that's true or not. Yeah, I mean, because that's Tattletale. Like, and... and, and... If you think about it, this is the first time we've gotten to experience her um, while not being on her side. Like, even even when she was doing things that Taylor didn't specifically know about, um, she, like, at least filled Taylor in on some of it, kind of. Like, we mm-hmm. knew a general idea. We knew that we knew what her general goal was because her general goal aligned with our protagonist. But here, like, all we have to go off of, of is what we know of the character and, like, conjecture and theories we know that tattletale's greatest asset on top of her power is the fact that people don't know what is her power and what is guessing and what is true and what she's saying what is false and and we see she's using that here too she sprinkles just enough truths through this conversation to to get vicky to believe at least that part of what she's saying is true to convince her of the other part that could just be totally made up or not. Like th- there's little, little beats where she says like, is like do what anyone who doesn't get into college does. So she, so she says, Hey, look, I know you didn't get into college. That's a little, little crumbs. I'm leaving you that I know certain things, but not everything. And that's just what, that's just what she does. And it's so fascinating to see this from the other side. I, I think that comment might be giving her like, like too much credit. Like th- I, I'm, I'm sure she's doing some of that stuff, but I don't know if every single one of those things she's like actively thinking about doing. I think she's just doing a lot of fishing and getting information based off of Victoria's reaction. Yeah, like I, I guess I just didn't get the sense that she that Tattletale really cares whether these particular villains are settling in the hollow point or not. So, right. so why would she be motivated to 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 subtly reverse psychology convince victoria to to help root them out yeah Um, yeah but i don't know i don't know i mean that's that's the thing is i would actually be really i think it would be really cool if this comment was exactly right and tattletale was playing 4d chess like this 
<laughs> um, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I I think it's very cool to see, and it's very different. It's a very different read on the character than we've ever seen before because we've never been in quite this position before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So before Tattletail leaves, Victoria gets in a burn about how she's surprised Tattletail's old team didn't show up, which is really pretty mean since, like, three of them are dead, as far as yeah. Victoria knows. Yeah, and this this gets to Lisa, Matt. Like, yeah. we see, like, she she turns away and makes it so the shadow falls covering her face so Victoria cannot see her facial expression and, and her like, her mouth, her eyes. She can't see her face. And then, and then she specifically says in that same tone, like she's intentionally trying to keep her tone the same, but this, uh, this digs at her a little bit. Mm -hmm. Of course it does. She's lost a lot of her team. She's like, Taylor is maybe dead. This is different. He's gone. He's gone. Yeah. Well, as as far as, that's why it's kind of shitty is like, as far as Victoria knows, Taylor's dead. And, And so it's like, oh, that. That was kind of that was pretty mean. That was pretty mean for for the Victoria that we like. It's almost like from from inside her head, you're not even sure if she like realized how mean it was when she said it. Um, yeah, I mean to be fair, I mean Lisa's been antagonizing her this entire time yeah. and like been been scraping at all her wounds. That's so true. like this this is a a response that is earned probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although yes, it is it is very hurtful. Yeah. And then she she adds, out of curiosity, I said, I saw her pause just as she was about to turn to walk away. I continued, do you regret your part in what happened with my sister? Do you? She asked without missing a beat. Absolutely, I said, without any more hesitation than she'd shown. Yeah. So what do you think? I mean, I think that helped Tattletail glean some information about her that she could maybe use later. Um, Yeah. So uh, the interpreter, like... The interpretation from this I, I took away was Tattletale sort of referring to the fact that, or to, to this idea that Victoria's aura was part of what made Amelia fall in love with her, and 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 thus she has some responsibility for incautious use of her power, and and thus she's partly responsible for this. I mean, there's there's also other ways I'm sure in which she was, you know, responsible for what happened to her sister in one way or another by either not being you know, supportive and driving her away. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it could have, could have gone very differently if Victoria had reacted differently. So, yeah. Well, and, and again, like, yes, Tattletail could have absolutely meant that, but she could have just been like cold reading her and said, I'll just ask the same question back yeah. and see what kind of information and reaction I get. Like, that's very much something we've seen Tattletail do as well. So like, we, we just have no idea here. It yeah. could be, it's, it's equally likely that it could be both of these things. Right, yeah, just reflexively not giving any information and bouncing the question back. Yeah, that's right, true. yeah. So Tattletale, um, uh, so so yeah, so Tattletale leaves and Victoria flies off when she's when she feels like she's able to, and meets up with one of Kinsey's aerial drones. It turns out Kinsey recorded everything, and Victoria then goes through the record and redacts all the parts um, that discuss things that she's not comfortable sharing with the rest of the team. Yeah, continuing the team Misfit Toys tradition of hiding things from everyone else. Yep. <laughs> so back with Misfit Toys, Victoria walks them through the conversation. Victoria still thinks her power, uh, still thinks Tattletail's power is sensing weak points. 
Okay, but to be fair, that's what she uses her power for a lot. Yeah. Yeah, she senses... She definitely does sense weak points. She just senses everything else also. So Yeah, yeah. yeah so they finish the audio, and Victoria wants to now see a demonstration of powers to determine if they'll be a good fit for this task. Which means it's time for Powers Bonanza. That's right. And I don't know what voice I was... Two. I don't know what voice I was doing there. It was, <laughs> it was weird. I don't know. We'll We'll see. Okay. Uh, so they're at the advanced um, powers testing arena, aka a random forested rocky hilly area. Yeah, it's like it's like the X Men's danger room, only you know, the exact opposite of that. Right. It's just not. Just, yeah. So Kinsey needs help moving her giant tinker machine. Victoria follows her to the van where it's housed, and Kinsey's dad, Julian Martin, gives her a stiff greeting. She's like, "What do you do?" And he's like, "Realty." Very, very yeah. warm man. Yeah, I don't know if we're ready to like fully speculate on this guy or not. <coughs> Robot. Um, but it is interesting to at least at least point out here how Wildbow is drawing attention to the oddness of the interaction, right? Like like this is this is a weird conversation, and we are drawn to that through the writing. Um Julian only speaks when spoken to throughout most of this conversation there's one moment near the tail end of it where he initiates a question but every other moment he's being he's only speaking when spoken to and then he only offers these one or two word answers and then kenzie quickly jumps in and fills out the rest of the information fills in the the back information on these on these curt answers and he has no real specific questions for victoria at all about like who are you um What's your plan here? What's going on? And yes, you could argue that it's because Kenzie already filled him in and stuff, but uh, he he acts very non-parent-like here. And you're the dad, so you tell me if this is how you would you would ha- you would react to your kid's new friends. Well, no, but I think either so either he's a robot or he's like a, a bad <laughs> dad, right? And and I think right. I'm actually more in the like he's a bad father for for some reason we don't know why camp um now we're at the point where you and i can make different speculations and then only one of us is right and then we get to hold it over the other person so that's good fucking speculation thunderdome matt yeah that's right but but i don't uh, like for example one thing that makes me think he's not a robot is that instead of just like when she says oh hey can you go pick up rain from the train station he's not he's not just like yes master he's yes he's like that's annoying i don't want to have to do that but then he does it anyway which right. you, you could, of course, argue that he is a robot who's just designed to vault briefly <laughs> and then comply. So, uh-huh. um, yeah, anyway, we'll see. No, I think I think it's it's a very complicated thing, and I think it's intentionally complicated. Like, we're getting little bits and pieces. But the, the most important takeaway from this is that um, it's not a normal relationship, one way or the other. Whether this is an AI created by Kenzie uh, to play surrogate father or whether this is just a guy who's just a really shitty dad and it helps to explain why she is so desperate for connection and for people and friends and so terrified of being left out um i think i think we get there either way so um it's just interesting to point out and, and we'll see we'll see how this this unfolds yeah yeah uh so victoria is going to carry her big tinker box and is expressing some concern about it and we see the first beat of Kinsey going, geez, it's not going to blow up or anything. Or if it did, it wouldn't be a big enough explosion to hurt anyone. Not unless very specific conditions were met. 
It's like the least reassuring answer of all yeah. time. It's right. like it's not going to blow up. Well, I mean, I, I guess it, it could, but like only if like this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it might blow up. Right. It's like yeah, you can technically turn a laptop battery into a bomb, but it's not like every time <laughs> you hand someone a laptop, you're like, now right. just don't plug several back battery packs in in series. Right. Yeah. So Victoria makes some rigging out of straps so she doesn't have to grab the box itself with her force field while Julian goes to pick up Rain. And as she's doing this with her force field, she thinks, I hadn't interacted with it much. I hadn't seen the limits of its intelligence or lack thereof. This one minute of flying might have been, might have even been the longest period I'd properly used my strength in two years. So she, we've got words like interacted with intelligence. So she's clearly, you know, thinking of it as a separate entity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- this isn't the first time she's done this either. You know, when she used it to to pick up that car, she named it. She called it the Phantom Wretch. And I suspect that a lot of Victoria's growth throughout this book is going to, and it's of course going to be tied to this thing and and her eventual need to accept that this is a part of her now. This is not a separate entity. It It is her on some level. Um, and you can extrapolate this idea to shards in general, you know, like to, to, to Cape's relationship with shards, like the cycle was broken. These things, they're not, they're not going anywhere. They're, they're stuck inside you. They're here to stay. Uh, this is, this is part of you now on some level, and you're probably going to have to learn to deal with that. Yeah. That's very interesting to point out here. Cause we've got a few beats throughout this whole arc where, different characters you know talk about their awareness of the fact that they have this alien that's that's part of them and different characters have different attitudes about it which yeah I think which is I th- realistic i think we have some interesting things we're going to say about that when we get to it mm-hmm. um some some interesting thoughts that i pulled out of it the one thing i wanted to bring up here is that i did not put the pieces together that victoria's super strength itself was related to her force field um, I'm sure we learned that at some point, but I, my my mind had never connected those dots for whatever reason, which is uh, I think a very a very clever um, way to force her into the situation where she has to use this thing, and the thing that literally provides her strength also provides her extreme discomfort. Mm-hmm. But I I just hadn't connected those things uh, until until this moment. Yeah, I think I. I don't remember why I knew that, probably just from being immersed in fandom for so long. But uh, I, I'm pretty sure it is explained in, in Worm, but it's one of those oh, details sure that you is. can miss. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, speaking of Kinsey's dad, he doesn't wave to her when he drives away, um, which is obviously crushing. But Victoria cheers up Kinsey with a short uh, flight over to where the others are. Yeah, that's it, it's I think that's, you know, another part against the whole dad is a robot theory. Um mm-hmm. Like, like we said, there's something weird going on with her father, but that if you have a programmed AI to simulate, and maybe it's just that the programmed AI is such a good job at simulating her dad that it retained all the the shitty characteristics of him too. Like not waving to your daughter when you leave, even though she clearly wants it. I don't know. Um, Something's going on here, but yeah, Yeah. I don't, it's fun to speculate, but I don't know. It's enticing. Yep. Yeah. Um, and this kind of segues into a humorous discussion about whether or not people should be leery around Tinker Tech. Yes. Yeah. Uh, with Kinsey saying, my multiversal horror is pretty tame, I think. She just likes to build things and gather information. <laughs> I'm glad everyone's just like super 
casual about their alien death shards mm-hmm. now. Um, and like this is this is what I we were, I was alluding to earlier that this is an interesting little wrinkle in the whole thing now um, because it, it it might maybe helps to explain why she feels the need to constantly be surveilling her friends because her shard is wanting this thing. But that got me down this this train of, of thought that like, well, we now live in this world where capes are aware of what the shard is and what it does and that it is having like it has its own goals and it is influencing you in some way. Um, doesn't that therefore provide you a pretty good scapegoat for some of your actions? Like if you want to do something and you can just say, no, it's it's my shard like this my shard wants to do it like i don't it's not me it's the shard is making me do it um there's no there's no real like indication in this spot in particular whether that's happening or not and and i have no idea but i just think that's an interesting kind of wrinkle to the whole relationship between uh, a parahuman and their shard that has never been present in worm because it wasn't common knowledge at that point yeah, and I think it's really cool because that extends this metaphor of powers as not just trauma, but as mental illness in general, because I think there is a, a failure mode where um, someone c- can potentially blame bad behaviors on the mental illness as, as if it's like a separate entity from themselves. Um, right. And that's it's obviously really complicated. Just like, you know, yeah. having an alien shard is complicated. So, <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, and I think that ties back to what we were talking about before, this idea that you need to come to an understanding and an, an acceptance with the fact that this thing is part of you now. And, um, and it, just treating it as a separate entity and then blaming it for your kind of worst tendencies is not really a solution to that problem. Right, yeah. So now uh, they start getting ready for battle. Tristan puts on his armor, which is goat-themed and expensive, brushed metal, red-tinted, and then he says Byron's is fish-themed. And then Tristan demonstrates his matter creation ability. Using motes of orange light, he makes a discus, and then he makes a weapon, a mace, that comes out with curved hooks. Um, He explains how he can make materials become permanent or or not. Uh, And at this point, he's in a pretty good mood. And then he asks Byron if he wants to help with the demo. So he swaps out with Byron. And when Byron phases in, one of the maces turns into a spray of water while the others, well, while the other uh, object remains intact in his hand. Yeah, this is really cool. And I want to talk about this for a little bit because as we've stated many times back in Worm, the, the powers that capes have are tied to their trauma. And, and therefore, they are intensely personal the powers you have reveal something about who you are and the things that you've gone through and so so we have this situation where we we're we're exhibiting all these powers in this this danger room scenario and that is not just showing us what these people can do it's a window into who these people are and i think that's something kind of unique to the story that is not present in other comic book slash superhero stories that the powers are more representative. But anyway, we can take this and we can apply this to Tristan and Byron here and we can see kind of who they are. Tristan's creations are much more definite in shape, right? He, he makes shapes. He makes like, it's not abstract. It's, it's a discus, a mace. And so we see he's kind of much more left-brained. 
Um, he's he's more logical, perhaps. He's he's a little more analytical. Byron's shapes are kind of much more abstract. They specifically say that his shapes don't have as as clear a form, and that makes him kind of a little more right-brained, right? And I think this makes a certain kind of, you know, narrative simpatico between these two characters that share a body, that they each are completely different personality types and different brained and and how that fits into sharing one person. But I also think it's more than that, Matt, because Tristan creates rock when he he makes stuff. It's mm-hmm. solid, it's unmovable, and that's kind of him. He he decides on something and no one's going to change his mind. He is like unwavering in his opinion. We see this more when things come to conflict at the end of this ch- uh, not this chapter, but the end of the arc. But that's that's who he is. He's solid as a rock. Byron, on the other hand, he kind of goes with the flow a little bit more. Um, he he doesn't always agree with what's going on. And, and we'll see that also at the end of the arc, that he specifically has some objections to things. But he's much more likely to just kind of go with it and and accept that he's against this immovable rock hard object. And I think that's really fascinating. Like this is one thing that's unique to the story and I think it's really cool. And these things are not just cool things people can do. They are extensions of the characters themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can get as elaborate as you want with the with the water and rock metaphor because, like, yeah, rock is strong and unyielding, but also it's it it shatters when you when you do get it to break. Whereas water, yeah, yeah. water will conform to to impacts. And indeed, as we see it used in in this very arc, it's uh, it's a pretty powerful force for pushing things on its own. Yeah, um, and then to continue the the trend of powers making people's problems worse, it gives these two brothers a pair of powers that are both pretty good by themselves, but that work even better when used in tandem, as they do later in this skirmish. So the nature of the power forces these two brothers who don't necessarily get along that well to interact and cooperate to use the powers effectively. You're right. Damn shards. Yeah. Um, so yeah, once Byron comes out, he gives everybody a piece of his mind. This is a terrible <laughs> idea, he said. Tristan being involved, this team concept, the potential for disaster, and this thing with Paddletail. I don't see anyone changing their mind. Mrs. Yamada couldn't convince them. I don't think I can. If they're going to do this or something like this, isn't it better that they do that they do it smart and informed? That was uh, Victoria. I don't know, he said. But if you're enabling them, you should know you own a share of what happens. Um, which you know, probably pretty fair actually. So when uh-huh. Tristan when Tristan comes back, he's clearly pissed that Byron said all that stuff, and uh, he he says he's quick to say there's a problem, but he doesn't suggest alternatives. And I like that we're never like it, it, at this point in the story, even up to the end of this arc, we there's nothing to say like Tristan is is wrong and Byron is right or or vice right. versa. They're just kind of in a in a situation and they're being driven by their needs and. It makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. This is, I think this is really fascinating. And I, I, the, the part that I picked up on in, in the quote that you pulled was the idea of enabling them, that, that Victoria is enabling their behavior. And that's something we're going to hit again and again, I think, throughout the rest of these chapters as we see that this group kind of serves as a force for enabling each other's uh, behaviors and how how potentially troublesome that is. Mm-hmm. But I think the most important takeaway here is something that we're also going to see hit again and again is Victoria is like continually getting bombarded with warning signs about how this is not 
a good idea. Like there's red flags popping up all over the place and we will see those again and again and again throughout this. And we see her acknowledge them. She's aware of these concerning things. She even shows concern at times, but then each time kind of just either just like stores it for use later or just moves on anyway. Yeah, right. That's it's maybe a form of that bias we were talking about. So yeah, we also learned that if Byron splashes water over someone and then they change out, then the water turns to stone. Wait, does that mean you're for like a like a swimming pool filled with Byron water that Oh my god. Yeah, or or if you've inhaled some, perhaps. Um <laughs> You know that's going to fucking happen, yeah. too. I mean, that's Jesus. Oh, uh, yeah. Good. So, yeah, then he tells her, uh, uh, Tristan tells her that the powers weren't originally rock and water. The power changed to match when they got the Capricorn name and theme. And that's potentially pretty useful. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And it, it, not only is it useful, but I think it's like a window into kind of shard behavior a little bit here that the shard will, would actually adapt the power based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, not only pull information from the time of the trigger, but continually pulls information about their personality moving forward. Um, and it, it's interesting to, to speculate what this could mean and how this could be used. And sometimes Matt, it's tough to tell what is obvious foreshadowing and what is just fun world building. Um, and this is one of those things that really could be either. And then, but, but perhaps it's, you know, somewhere in the middle, it's this, it's this dangling thread that, that Wildbo leaves himself that he could choose to pick up on later if he wants to or not. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good interpretation. It reminded me, I actually, in this very moment, it didn't remind me until now of, uh, Glastigwenye's, um, discussion of how the, the passengers are just as influenced by the masks as as the masks are influenced by the passengers. I mean, she was being very cryptic about it, but I think what she was saying is the persona of the cape can actually have a, a strong influence on the on the power. And and she even says something like masks is is what they are. I forget her exact wording, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it's, this definitely speaks to that where he, he bit. He, you know, figuratively and literally changed his mask and his power changed to match it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting stuff. Yeah. yeah. So now Sveta demonstrates what she can do. She stays inside her prosthetic body, but she extends her limbs out using her tendrils and Chris remarks, you're made of grappling hooks. Yeah. And this is one of those moments where Scott like smugly says, well, that doesn't seem very useful. <laughs> and then just like waits for the story to prove me wrong. Like yeah. this, this was going to happen. Um, I, I like this part in particular when they're talking about uh, how, you know, her, her body is, is pretty tough. So there's, there's low risk that her body will get broken and she'll break out and just start crushing people to death with her tendrils. Um, and Victoria thinks, says, yeah, but then thinks, but if they think you're dur- durable, they may not hold back. We had addressed that when we came to it. And it's just like red flag, Victoria. Red yeah. flag. Red yeah. flag. We'll address that when we're in the middle of a battle and your prosthetic <laughs> body is shattered and you're amongst yeah. us suddenly. Oh, God. Um, so Kinsey now demos her eye hook and flash gun, which are both tinker toys, which are camera themed, although not 
you know, much more powerful than just a camera and useful in, in creative ways. Yeah, just, yeah, just, just makes light, you know, no big deal. Just yeah. can blind people for two hours. Yeah, having your retina seared by that level of, of light intensity, I'm sure it doesn't have any permanent effects either. Nah. No. Um, so then it's Chris's turn, and when she comes to him, he sounded aggrieved, like it was my fault he had to explain it all. I don't know what else you want. I have a few different forms. They're inspired by the moods and mental states. Uh, it's just such a such a tween. Yeah, yeah. What did you learn in school today? Ugh. How's, how's your friends doing? Ugh. What does your alien superpower let you do? Ugh. Yeah. My five-year-old already does that, so <laughs> looking forward to... Anyway, awesome. Uh, so interestingly, Kenzie says that he has eight or more forms and that he loses track, which was one of the many things in this chapter where I went into like a recursive loop of thinking because he has 32 Parahumans online profiles, which hints that he may have as many as 32 forms, although another possibility is that there's like some factor of 32 and, and then he just has riffs on each one. Yeah. But it does suggest that he may have more than eight. Um, and if so, like Ken, we strongly suspect that Kinsey knows that he has all those parahumans online profiles. Yeah. So either, I don't know. It's just, it just made me think like is so, someone's lying here. I think. Yeah. And I mean, he does say that like, it's not as cut and dry as like one emotion, one form that there's like kind of blurring and mixing mm -hmm. between them. And like, we see like he has like, I I'm trying to remember the names of his different profiles, but like they're like, there's one that's the mammal and one that's the insect and one that's a cephalopod. So, but then he's got like curious and I forget what the other names were, but he has them. So maybe, mm -hmm. maybe he has like eight different forms, but then like, um, different version, a little different, slightly different them. twists on each one yeah. of them. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's possible. And, and that would make, that, that would make sense. And it would mean they weren't lying here. Um, mm -hmm. I, just, I wasn't sure what to make of it. So I was just kind of running different interpretations. Yeah, it's, al it's almost as if we're like being primed to be paranoid here, Matt. Yeah. It's almost as if, Every everything we encounter, we're examining it from ten different angles to determine <laughs> if it's a trap or something. <laughs> um, yeah. So now we get a little bit more explanation about Chris's power. Tristan explained he changes to one, he gets a little taller, a little stronger, a little more sluggish. He changes to another, he gets better ears, eyes, thus the headphones. Kinsey said, and less responsive in hand-eye coordination to go with it. He tries to balance, but lately it's been getting worse. So basically, if he doesn't use his changer power, he can't tap into the emotions that he's not using, and his thoughts go in circles. Yeah, so this is um, really awful. <laughs> like, out of all the powers we've seen in the book thus far, this one really bums me out the most. Like, in order to feel happy, he has to turn into a happy monster, but... But Happy Monster also permanently changes him in other ways, so he's forced to constantly be changing into Sad Monster and, and Mad Monster to to rebound in ways that bring th those changes into check. But then that makes his emotions ha sad or depressed 
or angry. And it's just like, there's no, like it's, it's all bad trade-offs in every single way. It's a bad trade-off. Yeah. You get the sense that he's just constantly drifting away from whoever he was when he triggered. And like, there's no, there's no sense that like, Oh, he, he makes a change in one direction and then he changes and then it reverts in the other direction. It's like, no, it's just, just gradually in, in every aspect just kind of morphing into someone different it reminds me of yeah. oliver actually where like he just looks different every time you see him mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's really it's sad it's it's like a rough way to live yeah yeah so he returns looking like a gawky teenage cave troll and kenzie says uh oh, he chose one of the more pleasant looking forms um which gives us an obvious hint as to how monstrous he can become yeah, and, yeah. And then apparently there's a 20-minute duration on this form. Tree-eating troll people. Yeah. So pleasant. Yeah. Lovely. So Tristan and Ashley volunteer to be team leaders. The teams end up as Kinsey and Chris with Ashley, and Sveta and uh, Victoria with Tristan. Chris smiles as he joins his team, the first real smile she's seen. Because it's the Joy Ogre, and he can be happy now. Yeah. Not... I am sad. It's the Gruffalo. So Tristan starts making a wall, uh, and Victoria prompts him to explain his game plan. It's go time, Matt. Capture the flag, cape style, with minimal deaths. Yeah, hopefully not not too many. <laughs> so 3.3 opens. The game plan is for Sveta to go after the, the flag, while Tristan builds a fort with high walls, which is pretty cool. I would use that all the time. I would have such a cool fort. Uh, Sveta confides in Victoria that she's anxious about how this is going to go. She's afraid this exercise is going to somehow be a disaster. She asks Victoria to believe in them and give them a a chance. She also nervously asks Victoria not to be so stiff. Victoria, for her part, doesn't seem to take it personally. Yeah, but this is an interesting view into how Victoria is presenting herself to these people so far. That Sveta picks up on this and is like, you, like, I want you to to believe we can do this like it's you're, you're coming off as if you're like expecting us to lose and looking for faults in places and you're you're really stiff you're uncomfortable you're tense you are not like you're not hanging out and having fun you're inspecting us and that's something that i don't think victoria was possibly aware that she was doing but we get to see through other people that this is how she's coming off at least yeah, right. And and it, it's, I think you're right, because the way she reacts is like, oh, I am being stiff. She's not like, I'm not being stiff. She's, she, she kind of tries to loosen up, but it's hard for her. And, and you know, they, they, they communicate about it. They talk about how, you know, she's, she's just really unsure about all this. Um, yeah. And Sveta yeah. kind of doubles down and is like, look, it's, it's really important to me that this work out. I need this to work out. And so, you know, swallow your, uh, your reservations and just uh, plunge at first into this dangerous and unstable situation because you're Red my flag. friend. Red flag. Yeah, right. So Victoria sets out the ground rules. No injuries that aren't going to heal in a day. Otherwise, <laughs> it's just standard capture the flag rules. Um, we see Tristan prepare a layer of created rock over the ground of their base, which is, um, you know, foreshadowing for what's going to happen soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so the game starts. Chris crams a tree in his mouth. The Ashley, Kinsey, Chris team goes on the attack. Sveta heads for their flag, and Victoria goes to intercept Chris and Kinsey, but is nearly blinded by Kinsey's flash gun. 
I don't know, Matt. Sveta going off on her own. They didn't. They didn't leave any defense back at the flag. I don't know about this move. Yeah, that's that, that's a dangerous play there. Chris tries to grab Victoria, but she uses her R to throw him off. Save. Oh, what a move. Yeah, Victoria hears a horrible sound as Ashley uses her power. Victoria takes off and bum rushes Chris, then breaks and hits him with her R, stopping him in his tracks. You know, we 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 knew that Ashley didn't have a lot of control of that power before, but whatever those uh, prosthetic limbs are, it seemed to be doing the trick. Yeah, yeah, she seems to be really in control now. Ashley, who Victoria now thinks of as Damsel now that they're fighting, uh, despite still thinking of Tristan as Tristan and uh, not um, Capricorn. She's the enemy. Yeah. I heard Damsel's response, but I had other focuses than making out the words. It might have been, pay attention to your opponent, or pay attention to who you're fighting. Uh, oh my why, why, Ashley Kuhn? What is... Just, I, I don't know okay, what Scott. that means, Matt. It's targeted at all of our listeners who are all anime fans. I'm sorry. I don't. Are you making anime references no, on my podcast? No, I didn't do that, Scott. Matthew. So, so Victoria flies around Chris and pulls him backward. He's a bo- he's bottom heavy, uh, so he doesn't topple easily. But then he trips over one of Tristan's walls. Oh, they've got they've got him on the ropes now. Got him on the ropes. Victoria watches Damsel use the back blast of her matter annihilation power to launch herself around the battlefield. She uses it to effectively fly around him and body check him, sending him sprawling. Which is ridiculous. What a ridiculous use of the power. Yeah, you use your own body as the as the projectile to smash uh-huh. people around, ar- armored people. Victoria flies right up to her at top speed and hits her with a point-blank aura. Ashley stumbles back, then launches herself into the air and spears down at Victoria, who evades, causing Damsel to probably lose some cartilage in her knees. Yeah, those legs are broken, Matt. Yeah, that just that was just so painful to read, honestly. <laughs> then Damsel blasts herself at Victoria's head and wraps around her, leading Victoria to need to use her force field to pry off the ex-villain. Afterward, Victoria is disappointed that she let herself do that rather than go with the... Uh, judo-like attack and uh, roll with it. That certainly says something about Matt's uh, Victoria's mindset here, Matt. She wants to win, but she wants to do it in a certain way. That's right, Scott. Tristan calls for help, saying that they'll catch Ashley on the return trip. We see Chris draw the tree back out of his mouth, changed, narrower, thinner, smoother, and slick with fluids. Mm, The old, the old digested tree bat play (laughs) (laughs) so he uses it to smash his way free of tristan's stone restraints over in the enemy base sveta can't get the flag because kenzie has made dozens of illusory duplicates of the flag whoa i didn't see that coming because it's a projection i get it just move on when damsel gets to the flag tristan swaps out with byron and the stone under her feet turns into a cascade of water Victoria smashes the stick that Chris is using for stability, causing him to be washed down the hill with Kenzie and Damsel. Then Sveta promptly returns with the flag, having simply used her tendrils to grab for every flag. What a wonderful play to end the game. Wow. Sveta for the win. Didn't see that coming. Said her power was useless. Look at this. Shows me up. I'm embarrassed. I bet that I bet that Ashley is, is disappointed, though. I bet... Uh, yeah. I d- d- Team Ashley, they had some high hopes coming into this game. and uh, Team Ashley. Yeah, that completely level-headed and not prone to outrage and outbursts team is going to deal with this really well. Yep. But actually, everyone does, except for, except for the leader. Yeah. 
And so we'll see. So so Kinsey uses the projector to replay holographic after images of what everyone did in, in the fight. Uh, Rain arrives, having gotten off without having to show them his powers, and um, starts showing everyone his tinker arms. And now Chris transforms back to normal, but his smile remains. It's like a hit of a drug, he said. Focus, surprise, sadness, appreciation, disgust, fear, anger, and then this one. Joy? I call this particular flavor of it wan indulgence. Is that is it, Scott? Is it wan or wan? I damn it. I don't know, Matt. I wish Smart I knew list. English. Um, so he's stuck in. So basically, he's been stuck in anger mode the whole time we've known him. Yeah. Um, if we take the ordering literally, then that basically means there's several positive emotions in a row followed by several negative emotions in a row. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm curious. And uh, is he? unable to um control which he turns into is it just like in a cycle or uh, i'm not sure i think it is a cycle like he talks about how he's like i want to transform into this vigilance form next so i can get better eyes or something so like it's like he knows what's coming next okay uh that's that was my interpretation so yeah i think i think you're probably right i mean i think there is a reason he lists them in this order you know yeah right and again i'm i'm just kind of unsure uh, because like his parahuman online profiles were like curious something and curious like the emotion of curious is not on that list so that i I suspect i'm being too literal and maybe he was just being playful with his pho names but i I really i don't know it's enough to inject some uncertainty for me yeah yeah well and it could be that that little uh tinge on that thing so it's it's a curious surprise yeah <laughs> or a, right. a curious anger Possibly, you know yeah. I, I don't yeah yeah i don't know yeah so um at a certain point it becomes clear that ashley is a barely contained powder keg victoria and tristan try to compliment how scary she was to fight various other characters actually are sort of walking on eggshells at this point yeah um it's because she is a, a powder keg matt yeah and it's interesting because if we continue the the thread we had with Capricorn and how your powers and how you use them define who you are, Ashley literally throws herself into conflict by detonating a matter-destroying shotgun in the opposite direction. So, like, it's loud, it's violent, and it often does just as much damage to herself as it does to the person she's ramming into or the places she's going. But there's still like a certain amount of grace to it. Like when you see her in action, it looks like graceful and taking away the loud, the loud, scary noise. But I think that's Ashley. Yeah. This may be a bit of a stretch, but I kind of want to compare Ashley and Victoria because both of them have very <laughs> are you, intimidation. Are you being intentionally ironic. What? Cause later in the chapter, Ashley literally says we're a lot alike. Oh. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah. Just like the fact that they're both centered around, uh intimidation although they they twist it in different directions obviously yeah that was my own original observation scott no you sure that the book didn't just I, say that i didn't i didn't only <laughs> see that because it was spelled out by the by the book okay um so yeah so yeah i can kind of empathize with ashley's position and in, in her tantrum here like she's smart she's strong she tries hard but she went up against Victoria, Sveta, and Tristan, all three of whom have actual experience fighting with their powers. Uh, and while only Ashley 
who she really basically doesn't have any real experience because all of her memories of being damsel of distress are fake. And then two tweens who also, as far as we know, don't have a whole lot of combat experience. So I think she, she, she thought she was being clever in who she was picking in terms of their power set, but she didn't, and she didn't really understand the value of experience and of making mistakes. Um, and uh, that's why her team lost, basically. Yeah, as a as a wise puppet once said, Matt, failure is the greatest teacher. That's right. So anyways, their reassurances are insufficient, and Ashley fully blows her top. She goes full villain monologue. She rants about how she could have killed them all if she hadn't held back, and how she wouldn't mind doing it. I've died, and I came back with only the vicious parts of me intact. All of the warmth, the good memories, the family, they're just a fuzzy, indistinct dream. Those memories have no hold on me. The killing, taking people's arms and legs and watching them bleed out, that's clear as anything. I could do the same to any of you. Yeah, so these, her rant here is very well written. Um, it's very, like, we've seen her, like, I, I, I think back to the, the prologue when she was kind of trying to be intimidating online and failing, um, because it just comes off as kind of ridiculous when you see it in text, but in, within the prose here, this is really intimidating. Like it is, it is really kind of worrisome and I'm mad. I'm super glad that this person is on the team. Mm -hmm. Please note that this sentence could be substituted for literally any other person on the team. Yeah. It It is very interesting though, that we like, we're clearly kind of setting up that Ashley at least in Victoria's eyes, is the most dangerous, most volatile person on the team. And I think we learned a little bit later that this is this is kind of misdirection. This is this is Victoria's bias working against her. She doesn't think this person she's very not that she doesn't think, but she's very um unsure about the idea of Ashley, a former Slaughterhouse Nine member, especially considering what the Slaughterhouse Nine did to her, uh as as a person deserving of second chances. So she's immediately targeting this person. And this interaction is kind of just reinforcing the thing that she already believed. Right. Yeah. But yet it's not enough to really push her to make a different decision. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. And you have to wonder what would at this point, like at a certain point, there's, there's a level of sunk cost where she's just like, yeah, I did just see damsel murder 12 innocent people, but I'm, you know, we kind of come kind of all in with this team now so <laughs> i think that i think that would probably do it <laughs> think so? yeah oh well we'll see so rain rather boldly interrupts this escalating situation telling ashley to count down from 10 when that doesn't work he tells her to count down from 100 count rain said his voice soft please you said before when you get like this there's a part of you that's saying you don't want to act this way and you can't listen to it so listen to the numbers first, then listen to that part of you. So Ashley heads away to cool off, and Kenzie follows her despite the protestations of her team. And uh, she gives Ashley an earbud from her music to share. Aww. And we get a little bit of more information about Ashley. Like she said, her memories aren't hers. She was cloned. They took her and they made up composite memories. But they had no reason to give her those fuzzy memories of other non-confrontational stuff. That wasn't Bonesaw's work. It's the agent. So people argued with me about this, but I thought that Bonesaw clearly did decide that she needed to give the clones a broad palette of memories so that they didn't succumb to the depth trap and just become totally dominated by their passengers. 
Well, Matt, I went back and read the Bonesaw interlude. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Made me made me read that horror show again. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but and and I did it in the attempt to to prove you right and be on your side. But I'm I'm not I'm not on your side, Matt. Oh no. <laughs> um, I I don't I don't think that it was. This is just my interpretation, but I don't think it was that the memory, it needed to be a holistic set of memories. It needed to be memories from the wide gambit of human experience. I think it was just the breadth versus depth thing was just when the memories were being applied and when the person that Bonesaw wanted her to become was calculated. So I thought my interpretation was Bonesaw instead of just giving her all the memories up front was like sprinkling them in, like slowly feeding them to her as she grew, um, in order to stop that. And so it's kind of like, kind of like a fast forwarded version of life experiences that you're like slowly, like trickling the memories into her instead of like putting them all, all up front. Um, I could be reading it completely wrong though, but I did, I didn't think it was specific that she needs happy memories too. And she needs, uh, like, things that make her act like a well-balanced person um i thought it was just when and how the memories were introduced okay yeah i I didn't go back and read it i just i thought i remembered something about her having access to all these stored memories and then she goes off and she kidnaps and murders the poor innocent girl to to get something from her and i thought that what she was getting from her was like a more wider variety of memories that she that she could use but um since I didn't reread it, I should probably just accept that I may be wrong and move on. I mean, it's, you know, there, there are such things as interpretations. That's so. true. That's true. So we can both be right, Scott. Hooray. Hooray. So anyway, um, they, they, they being the authorities use Ashley's behavior as evidence that she's more agent than human. And they see that as an opportunity to learn more about the passengers, the shards. <laughs> Which is, which is like great, I guess. I mean, it's certainly a way to learn about the shard, but like, this person's on your team, and you have to rely on this person down the stretch. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know, Matt. Yeah. Red flag. Yeah. So three dot four. It's a bit later, and Rain has arrived with his, and he's demoing his power. First, he shows his his uh, blast that makes materials or organisms uh, fissile. He describes having used it on a goat. Uh, no foreshadowing there. Uh, no, no red herrings either. Certainly nothing like that. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you picked up on this too. Um, and I like immediately, of course, made a Capricorn joke when I was doing my, my live tweet, but like there's, there's intentionality behind this, right? Like there's a reason it's a goat. And I see one of two possibilities, even though there are probably thousands of possibilities, but I see one of two. Um, either this is like meta narrative foreshadowing, and we're demonstrating that that rain is going to maybe quite possibly literally fracture the two sides of Capricorn. Or B, Rain was just making this whole story up of what of what he used his power on first, and he picked the first thing that popped into his head, which was a goat. Because he's standing next to his buddy Capricorn, who is also uh, his really good friend. And that was just the first animal that popped into his head. Yeah, maybe the first thing he used it on was, you know, the fifth member of his cluster. 
Yeah, that could be. Um, I think regardless of that, Rain is super interesting uh, thematically. Mm-hmm. His, his power is to make things easier to break in half, to make things easier to splinter. And I think that that hints possibly if, if we follow the personality as powers train of thought, that hints as his his tendency to take things apart. And and so so you could look at this and say, another red flag, maybe this guy has the ability that's just going to split this group in half or at least provide the first blow that ends up causing the split of this group. Yeah, he, he makes things fragile and right. perhaps his presence makes their group fragile. Yeah, yeah, I like red that. flag. There's so many, there's so many, Matt. Yeah. So yeah, he, he demonstrates an impressive lack of curiosity about the functioning of his own power, uh, which plays into what happens later, I, I think. At, mm-hmm. at this point, Chris annoys Kenzie by breaking something that she wanted to break. So she flies into a rage and shoots him with her flash gun so many times that he's going to be blind for potentially several hours. Weirdly, nobody, including Chris, is really all that bothered by this, except That's for fine. Victoria, who passingly thinks how weird it is and then just kind of moves on. <laughs> I mean, at least Chris is like high on joy right now, so he has an excuse for why he's not bothered. But everyone else is just like, eh. Yeah, just Kenzie, just blinding people for hours because I, they didn't let her knock over a rock that right. she wanted to knock over. And I guess Chris knows that he like can get a new set of eyes if he wants, but still, <laughs> still kind of. Yes, yeah, I guess. I don't know. So Rain explains that he sees the other members of his cluster in his dreams, including their unmasked faces. He also gets a power up every five days, plus a floating day that goes to someone random. Uh, substituting for the missing member of their cluster of five. Yeah, and I mentioned this a bit on Twitter, but I wanted to mention it again again here. Um, this this idea of cluster dreams is, is an interesting wrinkle in this whole thing that we haven't seen before. There's no real indication regarding um, if these dreams are a common element of cluster triggers. It's never mentioned before. I mean, but but we also have never really dealt with a cluster trigger in any kind of long-term way you know like we've we've never been this close to one and this uh this close to talking through the thing with them like i think foil was hinted at being that but yeah but, I, um, I think plus i think a circus is is one we know for sure yeah but again that's something that um we didn't we didn't get to spend a lot of time with circus right yeah, right but but the, the point is this whole this whole dream thing could go a long way to kind of explain the psychology behind these clusters and and why this kiss kill relationship seems to sometimes exist these people all experienced a trauma together and shared a trauma is a real thing and it usually results in this kind of you know collective binding that links people together in commonality and that's you know fitting for the fact that everyone went through this giant collective trauma called a called gold morning but but anyway Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so in, in cluster triggers, we have this, this, this trauma as binding thing made literal. They still see each other and feel each other, even in their dreams. So it makes sense, I think, that, um, a person's reaction to that connection would be strong. And you would be, I want to make this connection that I feel in my dreams or whatever as strong as possible by, spending the rest of my life with person under kiss or or destroy it eliminating the connection and the constant reminder of the trauma that i shared with that person which could be kill 
And there's no real confirmation on that. It's just a, a thought hole I went down <laughs> when I read about this. Right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, being haunted by people in your dreams is literally one of the worst things that can happen if they're people that you don't like. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It yeah. Worse. So, uh, yeah, they talk about how Rain's cluster has put a hit out on him and possibly set Tuttletail after him. Victoria thinks there's not a worse person to have on your tail and, and tells him she destroys people, which, yeah, but, like, I don't know how much of this is me being biased in favor of my good friend Lisa, but she only destroys people who cross her, you see. Right, right. Um, and and I, I completely agree that, that we have... Like there is there is a we've got worm Lisa bias that we will never get through because we loved this character so much. Um, but I do have have a hard time believing that Lisa would go along with an assassination attempt like this just just for the funsies or the money. You know, like I, I, I it, it, what it, what it does, what it does, because we know we know Lisa is it calls into question Rain's story, right? It calls into question this idea of, yeah, this is a cluster trigger just where it's just kiss kill and they're coming after me. Why is everyone going after Rain and not each other? What happened to that fifth member of the cluster that, according to Rain, died before his powers set in? Um, there's so much going on here that is mysterious and suspicious, and we don't know what to do with it it's just red flag i mean i've been saying red flag a lot because they're <laughs> it's it's everywhere they're, every single one of these character interactions brings up another concern the more we learn about the people the more you're like eh, uh-oh right i mean we know that power is basically go to people who are going to be prone to use them mm -hmm. and so if there's a situation that occurs where s some people in a group are going to hate and want to kill someone else in the group then there's a reason for that and the powers just make it much easier for them to go about that in a violent way so yes yeah so yeah i like the bit where victoria lays out how tattletale quote unquote took over brockton bay uh basically you know the narrative is coherent but it's not really how we view it because the way victoria tells it tattletale was like the one who did it where while we really see it as Taylor being the leader and the driving force behind it. Um, and it's just, it's really interesting to see how Victoria perceives this. Yeah. It's another example of how your perception colors things, mm -hmm. colors how you see. And, it, and yes, it is missing a lot of detail. Um, but it, again, it makes me wonder what Tattletale is up to. And this is, this is the thing that has me really curious right now, because we've never really seen Elisa completely unfettered from Taylor before. Like every move Lisa made from the entrance into Taylor's story on was kind of at the service of her friend. She, she saw something in Taylor that reminded her of her brother and she was going to help this person and she was going to be with this person to the end and make sure that nothing awful and bad happens to her. So that person's gone now. What does she do? Who does she become now that that person is gone, does she continue to try to, to, to honor her legacy and, and run things the way she knows she would want to? Or does she find someone else to latch on to and do that same thing with? Who is Lisa now? And I think that's a fascinating question that I can't wait to see answered. Yeah, I think we were talking about this earlier. I think I said something like, I, I think Lisa was perhaps the least bad of the Undersiders other than 
mm-hmm. Taylor. Um, but I think it's 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 also true that she could have she could be much worse if circumstances drove her in that direction. Right. We've saw we've seen her cult leader ish tendencies before. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So now Rain tells the story of how he met Aaron. Her family came from a big city on Bet and is now settled in the middle of nowhere, and she stumbled on his workshop. And I mainly mention this so we can talk about whether it's a lie. Yeah, yeah. And it's difficult to speak with any kind of authority on this. Um, but also, you know, we have a podcast which grants us, like, implied authority. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lie. It's, yeah. it's definitely a lie. Or at, totally. least, or at least a non- insignificant portion of it is not true it may not be a total lie but he's leaving out some stuff yeah yeah Yeah. i don't know scott that sounds pretty paranoid (laughs) so they proceed to talk about uh big picture big big picture game plan tristan wants to lean heavily on kenzie's spying and sort of use everybody else to facilitate that uh they're only going to really go into violence mode if the circumstances are right yeah, and so I was a little impressed when I first read this. Like, Tristan seems to have thought things out, actually, and has, like, a plan. Like, we talked about last week about how this felt kind of like kids playing at capes. But, hey, this guy has a game plan. And it's not the the worst plan in the world. When I when I mentioned this on Twitter, someone told me that it it was very similar to Taylor's, you know, original infiltrate the bad guys and then and then sell them out to the good guys thing. And And it is definitely similar. Um, but I don't think it's quite the same. I think for one thing, Taylor was operating completely solo, especially after she went to Armsmaster and got totally rejected. These guys have each other at least to fall back on. Um, they have, as we'll see in a bit, a, a hero team that's actually supporting them in these ende- endeavors. But um, they're also a, a team of powder kegs. <laughs> and it's it's just like doing doing things this way has such a high degree of failure like it's so easy to screw this thing up especially as we learn more and more about who the hollow point people are and and who they have at their disposal that it's just like like seeing victoria just say hey okay yeah that, that could work it's just like oh no yeah yeah um it definitely, like, yeah, my imagination definitely runs away with all the ways in which this could go badly. And I think and, that's intentional. And besides Kenzie, are any of them really suited to infiltration and surveillance? I mean, that's like, you said heavily lean on Kenzie because the whole plan kind of relies on her. Like, everyone else in this group is more of a, like, a, a, a direct confrontation type person. Like, frontline fighting yeah um it's really just her that that just kenzie that's that's doing the surveillance part yeah exactly that's that's precisely true is is it's the the plan as it stands is that they're like leveraging her power and it you know if there's an opportunity the rest of them step in it's like okay well it's gonna be really frustrating for those of you who actually want to have cape fights if there's just like never actually any opportunity Mm-hmm. Um, and i think they're also gonna i guess one of the plans is i guess you could argue that chris's forms are a way to infiltrate because he looks different each time but that's tenuous he's got 20 minute timers on those things and 
um, he's he's not in the biggest control of his emotions at that time. Like that's like, all right, now you're gonna sneak in there in your anger form, but don't get mad. Yeah, make sure you're out in time and yeah. don't actually get into a fight. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the chapter ends with Victoria thinking about how all this this reminds her of the Vegas Capes and Watchdog, two groups known for subterfuge with different potential problems. She thinks those were the only two data points I had for teams like this, corruption and annihilation. I couldn't say for sure that, I, that it was a bad thing, but I couldn't say it was a good thing either. It's a thing, I said. Red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. Yeah. But, like, there, I only had two data points, corruption and annihilation. I couldn't say for sure whether that was good or bad. Yeah. Right. Well, two points make a line, Victoria. So <laughs> move into 3.5. Uh, Victoria puts Kinsey's huge camera back in her van, almost bumping into Kinsey with her force field, getting some hints here of a possible inevitable force field related mishap occurring. No, that's surely not going to happen, Matt. Mm, okay. What are you talking about? All right. The conversation about Rain's situation continues. Rain likes living out of the boondocks because he thinks it'll be harder for people to find him though it's also hard for his allies to get to him. Victoria offers to fly over the train and keep an eye out for trouble. Kinsey offers to give him a camera to carry, to carry with him. He's resistant to both of these, but he accepts the camera, though it's clear that he's mainly interested in uh, how do I turn this off. Weird. It's almost like he's a big, giant, liar-faced liar. Yeah, it's like he's being really secretive, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, when, of course, when Kenzie gives him the camera, whatever you do, Kenzie said, reaching out to touch Rain's forearm, do not put the battery pack in backward when you reinsert it. Rain looked down at the camera he held with a little bit of trepidation. Why? he asked. Because then it won't work, Kenzie said. <laughs> and then, skip forward a little bit. It's not going to misfire or blow up, I asked. Why do you keep asking that? No, it's a camera. There is a very small chance of it blowing up, and if it does, then it's going to be a very small explosion, unless you're very unlucky, and a lot of things that could make it blow up all happen at once, which is <laughs> so, so good. So I, I know we've talked about humor on this podcast before, um, but I, I kind of want to jump back down that rabbit hole again, because I think this is a really well-constructed joke, and we've talked about timing and how timing works in reading and how you basically have to structure it and i think the first part of this joke is like a master class in timing because like we have kenzie saying do not put the battery pack in backward when you reinsert it and then wildbo throws in some narration there to space the joke out right to give it some time to build that timing so he looks down at the camera with trepidation there's there's when you when you do that there's an implied pause there and so, like, in your head, you kind of hear the joke being set up. Why? Because then it won't work. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, this perfect... It's a great payoff. It's very funny. And it's constructed in a way that your your brain reads the comedic timing into the scene. And that's that's hard to do. Like, that's really hard to do. It's, it's hard to do punchline jokes in text. Yeah. And we have one here. Yeah, this works great. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't want to fuck up the joke, but this feels like the second beat out of some larger number of possible beats. Oh, like so so 
Would you mean like how the, the third beat usually subverts the other two and then so the camera blows up? Is uh, that is that I, what you're I don't know. You're 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 <laughs> you're you're kinda of reaching there, Scott. I don't okay. Know. Okay. Um yeah, so so Kenzie leaves with her dad now and they talk about how her dad is not a big one for the small talk. Yeah, yeah. So basically uh, they were in the car the entire time and did not say a word to each other at all. Um robot dad <laughs> again like we don't know but but i think i think it is interesting that that um rain makes the the important distinction to note that i didn't say a thing either so it's not just that this guy like you can't just say oh he's robot or hologram or something and like rain didn't talk either so like he didn't try anything in the conversation either and that is specifically pointed out here so um that's interesting that's interesting i'm just just keeping these things in my head waiting to see yeah how yeah. they're gonna pay off yeah um yeah so this is important here so victoria is kind of reflecting on this dynamic that she's witnessing around her and she's thinking there was something i noticed with the group and it was something i'd fallen prey to myself when the group was talking it was almost always in a guarded way even chris did it to a small degree ashley too Conversations were meted out with care, not necessarily so each person was protecting themselves, but so they protected each other. We often slipped back into talking like we were in therapy. And she continues this line of thought a bit, and it's clear that while these patterns make the misfit toys functional, they don't make them healthy. It's a stable arrangement for now, but it feels fragile, and we already see pathological pathways opening up. Yeah, and we're seeing that kind of group enablement going on here. Whenever someone behaves poorly, someone else steps up to defend them. And then, uh, they're kind of, they're insulated from outside sources. And it's interesting because you can see it. Like you can see the, the root of it, which is in, in Yamada's group therapy ses- sessions. And it makes sense in that setting. Like it's supposed to be this safe space where you can be honest and you can, uh, you can express yourself and express what you really want and what you really desire. And, and you can be, feel free from being attacked by the other people in the group. And that's great in therapy. Um, in the real world, <laughs> in, in a world of life or death situations and violence and st- extreme stress, that doesn't work so well. You and and the other thing we're forgetting here is that in therapy, you had a Yamada there who would step in and say, "Hey, Chris, you're 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 being an asshole," or "Hey, this line of thinking is not healthy. It's not good." Um, Victoria is supposed to be that here. She's she that that's kind of why Yamada brought her in. She's supposed to kind of help stop this kind of line of thinking and these these negative actions and so far in this in these chapters we've seen her notice these things we've seen her bring them up and then she just kind of drops it she notices these red flags she's aware of them but she doesn't seem to heed them and that's really interesting and that gets into her character and that gets into the thing that i think we've been explicitly avoiding talking about until we got to this moment which is why why is Victoria so set on this thing that even though there are warnings popping up into her head, she seemingly ignores them? And I think the answer is because she she needs this. This is purpose for her. And as much as she's wanting to help these people, 
she needs that purpose. She like we ha- we spent a whole arc talking about how she had nowhere she worked she could belong. She was like kind of lost and searching for a purpose and a place to belong. She's found it here and she's kind of throwing all her eggs into this this basket and when you do that you you tend to ignore the things that me- mean that you might have made a, a wrong decision. Yeah, right. I mean she's many of these of these people she she would say they deserve a second chance but and and so part of it is identification with others who who deserve a second chance and she kind of feels like she deserves a second chance and the world deserves a second chance but but i think it's intentional that some of these people namely ashley she does not really feel deserve a second chance like she's repeatedly voiced her reservations about ashley and kind of you get the sense if it were like just one-on-one the two of them she would be like no i want nothing to do with you you're you're basically a monster but yeah like you said because she needs to feel useful she's mm-hmm. uh she's taking this role on yeah and this is something that she doesn't seem aware of um like every time she talks about this group she talks about them externally like like they need direction they need help it's all about them. It's never internally focused on what she needs out of it, what she can get out of it. And um that's that's not great. Like it's it's that that lack of awareness yeah, is dangerous. is unhealthy for her. Yeah, yeah, dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as they're all heading out to leave, Chris turns down their offer to hang out with him until his eyes get better, which on reflection kind of parallels all of Rain's refu- yeah, refusals. In, in a way that makes me suspicious of his motives as well, but maybe I'm just being paranoid. I mean, I mean, you certainly are, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I do believe we're being pushed to that paranoia, Matt. Um, much, much of this arc, as we said, is cool teamwork stuff, but it's not just cool teamwork stuff in the happy go lucky kind of way. It's cool teamwork stuff. Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. Um, and we haven't even gotten to all of them yet. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of which, now we get this wonderful conversation between Ashley and Victoria. Ashley respects that Victoria has the wits to be afraid of Tattletale, that Victoria has seen real horror and pain and knows about the fates worse than death that lurk in the Cape world. Yeah, this is really good writing. Um, the, the prose here is really great. Her her speech about... Um, we've, like, you, we've both been to rock bottom and gone beneath it. It's very like powerful and we're we're kind of now confronting victoria's bias against ashley head on here she had reservations we we saw ashley blow, blow a gasket and now they're coming to a head and, and and this this is a direct confrontation about victoria's questioning of whether she deserves that second chance or not yeah and ashley is uh standing up for herself in a certain way I'm yeah. not even the most fucked up person on this team, Victoria. She said, I might not even be in the top two. Our therapist knows. That's why she was concerned enough to reach out to you. They, the really fucked up ones, they probably know. But I know it too, which makes me pretty certain. And uh, I, I, I specifically mentioned this because I didn't catch it the first time, despite the fact that it's italicized to draw attention to it. But... It, Ashley has already established that when she says concerned, she means afraid. So what yeah. she's saying is Yamada is afraid of of what's going to happen here. She's not just concerned. 
Yeah, I really like how that's that is done structurally, like right? Mm-hmm. Like we have we have this this earlier conversation where Ashley confuses or Ashley accuses Victoria of being of of having fear. Mm-hmm. And and Victoria's retort is, no, no, it's just it's just concern. And Ashley takes that and she uses it. And then we go down a few paragraphs down here where she's still using that as she's specifically taking Victoria's words and turning it against her here. Yeah. Um and it's a it's a really great bit of like like carrying that idea forward in a fun structural way. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, me too. Um, and, and it, it it leads you into a little bit of Ashley's conversation skills too. She's she's good at this. She's yeah. good at turning people's weapon, people's words against them. Yeah. Speaking of carrying forward things from earlier, uh, yet you're still here. I said. So are you. I'm cursed with an impulse to help people. I said. It's an epidemic. She said. Which, I'm, the the curse with an impulse to help people is basically what Point Me at the Sky said to Mangled Wings, which in Mangled Wings remembers someone saying this to her recently. Although, yeah, um, uh, it's an epidemic. You, it's, it's everywhere. Do you think? Do you think she connects the dots there? I don't think she or, does. I, I think or is it's, it's an epidemic specifically showing that she does not because she's saying, "Oh, people keep saying this to me." I, I think the latter. Um, I just I find that to right. be more poetical also this idea that that these characters don't recognize that they were the they were the pair where where Ashley admitted that she just wanted to learn how to be a better villain, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it and it is it is interesting that when you think back on it and you look we paired these two together pretty early in the prologue, right? Like they're they had the first interaction out of anyone on the team. Mhm. Uh, even if they didn't know it yet, so maybe that's a little line into into their future pairing, and 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 maybe they're going to interact a lot more. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what their their friendship arc looks like. Yeah, that's really fun to think about. One. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So she leaves, and reflecting on this conversation, she surreptitiously flies to the train station rather than home, and follows Rain's train at a high altitude. Finally, he shows up at the caboose and then jumps off the speeding train, displaying an impressive mover power by stopping on a dime on a steep slope without even a wobble. Rain then walks a fair distance and hangs out with Aaron, and they talk for a while. Eventually, she hands him a gun. Victoria feels really uneasy through all this. Uh, Somebody in a Reddit thread pointed out that Rain supposedly has an area-effect doubt power, so maybe that's why. Yeah, I honestly hadn't considered that. Um, It is interesting, though. I think you can explain her doubts here as just like a, a general feeling created by spying on your teammate. Mm-hmm. Uh, she feels as if she's betraying him, but her paranoia is getting the better of her. And interestingly enough, we learned that Rain is, yes, lying. He's lying about his powers. That that mover power was impressive as hell. Like, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he's, he's lying about where he's going. Her paranoia was correct, but it's not a smoking gun either. Like, he, he is... He is keeping stuff close to the chest, but he's not like working for the enemy or like, like, I don't know, like shooting babies in the face or anything. Um, yeah. And he's got people trying to kill him. So a certain degree yeah. of paranoia and, and de- deceptiveness on his part is more than understandable. Right. And this got me thinking, Matt. This got me thinking. Throughout this whole arc, we've been talking about the, these red flags that keep popping up. This everyone is suspicious everyone is concerning something is going to happen something is bad 
we are being paranoid and we're in victoria's head Mm -hmm. matt so so how much how much are we the reader being influenced by victoria's point of view here how much of this is actual real um disconcerting stuff and how much is just victoria's point of view on this other thing pushing us into this realm of constant paranoia that's an excellent question Matt. i'm gonna have to reread the whole story now with that in mind <laughs> because i mean like we have to remember that right like mm-hmm. this is a first person story we are in her head we are being influenced by the way she thinks because we are enveloped by it it's how we see the world so I mean, yes, I think even if you try to stand back and look at this absolutely abstractly, I think there uh, ab- there are concerning things that happen throughout the course of this chapter. Absolutely. But perspective, we've been reminded again and again about perspective and how perspective colors situations, colors how how we see the events unfold before us. And we are locked in one perspective. And I, I don't I don't know if this is intentional or not. We will see. But it just like I am not usually this paranoid when I'm reading. And I was like all in this, like freaking out about every little thing. And that it, it took me down that line of thought. So, yeah, I don't know. I yeah, don't know. it's it's interesting. We were, we were talking about this earlier. I, I was saying how I was like Vizzini in in Princess Bride, where I was like, well, it could be this. <laughs> But that could be a red herring and it could be the opposite. Or he could expect us to think it's a red herring and it's just the way it (laughs) appears to be. (laughs) And uh, completely not resolve and just end up tied up in a paranoid knot. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, uh, Victoria feels weird watching Aaron and Rain have an ice cream date. So she returns to Crystal's and her dad is there. Uh Uh-oh. And her dad apologizes pretty, pretty well, actually takes responsibility for his mistake, says, I let myself be stupid. I have a way of doing that when I'm around your mom. Yeah, big, big props here, right? It's like he read the book on how to correctly apologize. Yeah. And you got to you gotta express remorse. You got to take responsibility. And then you got to commit to change. That's how you apologize. And he does all that. He does kind of throw Carol under the bus, though. <laughs> Although, like, I'm totally riding on that bus and, and cheering him on, so... I mean, I guess it's okay, but he's like, it's all her fault. Yeah, it's it's not that clear cut. Your mother is a clever woman to the point she can outsmart herself. She has good instincts when it comes to getting people on her side, too. I've been missing home the past few years and seeing the woman I still love being warm for the first time. And um, So, yeah, that's a very complicated way of throwing her under the bus. But, but yes, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he it, does still take responsibility. I mean, it's not like he's yeah. fully pushing the blame off of himself. He's just trying to explain how he could have been so stupid. Yeah. I mean, one thing he didn't do, I guess, was lock her in the kitchen with him and demand that she explain what's going on with her life. Ooh, man. We're doing a lot of a, a lot of a de- <laughs> lot of worm dicks. Yeah, yeah. Um which is funny because I always thought Danny was okay, but yeah. Anyway, um, he was he was good, yeah. but he that he handled that situation poorly. Yeah. So Victoria also missed out on laser seared kebabs, family recipe, one of her favorites. So sad. Yeah. This I mean this is small, but this is another beat a, a second possibly about how the, the in the Dallin family the powers are just part of their everyday mundane life. For most of the capes we've seen, there's like a separation. There's um, 
your personal identity, your cape identity, and those don't really mix that much. Uh, this team, the team that was famous for unmasking and, and showing their true identities to the world, um, don't have that kind of separation. Powers are an integral part of their everyday life. They're an integral part for every member of the family. And this is important, I think, because it shows why a, a young girl, Victoria, was so desperate to get powers. If, if powers are this important to the everyday life of this family, like, that's a whole ton of pressure you're putting on a little girl. If she doesn't get them, then she's the one that doesn't have them in this group. Like, that's that's huge. I mean, that, that totally explains the root of and how, the depth of her trauma. Yeah. Yeah, she's like just imagine if she never got powers like you can imagine that she would right. have an equally impressive complex about that yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah so now they kind of segue into talking about the situation her dad gives her some free consulting on her misfit toys problem um, give her gives her some give her the skinny on some villain hangouts and the names of some kingpin villains um, and she says um, maybe I said if they absolutely insist on getting out there and mixing things up, I'll point them in the direction of the asshole villains who are ramping up their activity and taking things over. The nascent tattletales and marquises. Ah, no, I did I said it. Kneecap them <laughs> or their plans before they can get too big. You really are your mother's daughter, my dad said. My eyebrows went up as high as they could as I turned my full attention toward him. What you said before and what you just said now, those words could have come from her mouth in a different time and place. Yeah, that's great. Remember that person you really, really hate? Yeah. You're just like her. Yeah. Yeah. It's very clear that Victoria is not a fan of that comparison. Yeah. I mean, it's At probably, least in the moment. But, it, like, it's probably super valid, though. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, ultimately, he advises her to go talk to her mom and get legal advice, but he ends up, he ends the conversation comparing her not to her mom, but to, presumably, Amelia. I think I think that was my interpretation as well. That is what is implied, especially by how she reacts to it. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out what she says that reminds him mm -hmm. of Amy. That she says, putting all this stuff aside, if I walked away, if I left it alone, I'm scared of what would happen to the people who didn't deserve it. I can't do that. I don't know if that's the Carol and me talking, but it's the truth. I'm scared of what would happen to people who didn't deserve it. And like we said a, a couple times, this is not the first time Victoria has echoed this kind of sentiment. She did it way back in the first arc. Remember, she she used her powers in a situation that would basically get her fired because she had to act. If she did not act, she would see bad things happen to people who didn't deserve it. And mm -hmm. that's interesting. It's interesting that that part of her personality is reminiscent of Amy because I... I, I, it's tough to see, like, we, we see some of that in Amy for sure, but we also see an Amy that's like beaten down by that obligation. And we also see Amy through Victoria's lens, who is this evil monster who's going to probably destroy the world someday. It's like only a matter of time before she, she destroys the world. And, but this, this is an Amy that her surrogate, I guess, father is seeing and that's very very interesting yeah and then there's the the amy since 
Gold Morning, who's had even more time to grow in, into something right. Like, and different. I wonder if that's the Amy that he's talking about. How yeah. often? How often do his do her parents see Amy now? Are they are they an integral part of each other's lives or not? We we don't really know. Yeah, right. I mean, I kind of just got the impression that maybe her mom did interact with Amy regularly, and maybe her dad yeah didn't. That that was just my passing assumption, but. You know, when you think about it, that that doesn't fully make sense because um, Amy was their daughter basically for almost her whole life. You know, yeah. and and so her dad would want to see Amy, even if that's kind of unacceptable to Victoria. Yeah, I mean, the the epilogue of Worm kind of hints that she she might be regularly hanging out with her her parents, mm-hmm. but I think she's. She's hanging out with her her birth dad. Yeah, like she's that's home base is birth daddy. Mm-hmm. That's that's a good point. Yeah, but we I mean we don't we don't really know though. I mean we don't like because as we'll see in in the the uh, interlude for this arc, she's hanging out at at Warden's headquarters. So we don't we we have very little window into who Amy is and what Amy's doing in present day. Mm-hmm. We just have Victoria's point of view. And that is very clearly a biased one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So now we move on into 3.6 and uh, we're circling circling Amy. Yeah. Um, so Victoria opens up a group text inviting the misfit toys to join her at the wards HQ. Ashley can't make it, luckily, uh, but she's joined <laughs> by Sveta, Kinsey, and Tristan. Uh, yeah. Thank God. Thank God you were busy, Ashley. Or, Or more realistically... No, I don't want to do that. Yeah, right. So we get a nice description of the Warden's HQ. It's way more intimidating than the aesthetic of the Protectorate. The huge armored statue reminds Victoria of the six pounds of gun speech. The the statue is mostly shield and armor with a big weapon, too. Probably supposed to remind people of Chevalier. They all agree. Yeah, it makes sense since uh, Chevalier is the baddest motherfucker in the valley. That's right. um, I like the idea of a more intimidating location, a more intimidating place, a more intimidating team. I like that reflection on what the world is now because the protectorates and the PRT's goal was all about integration, right? It was it was making the how people perceived capes as happy and positive and good as possible. That's over now. That's it's impossible. We've we've seen They've seen capes go full force. They've seen what they're capable of. This idea of playing this happy world where capes are all good and will protect you is kind of gone. Now, in this new world, they need to display strength. They need to display... If they're going to help make the world better in the way that they see it, they need people to believe that they're fully capable of following through on their desires. And and I think that's that's shown by how this place is decorated and what it looks like and and it's also kind of turning into the skid a little bit here like if people are already going to be scared of capes if that's the reality that we live in at least use that fear to accomplish something hopefully good yeah yeah it's kind of like victoria's power it's intimidation and awe two sides of the same coin so yeah yeah just just use use that however it works for you Mm mm-hmm so inside, there are more statues of the key members of the uh, of the wardens. We know almost all of them. Yeah, our girl Valkyrie got a statue, Matt. Two years, I already got a statue. Yeah, yeah. 
And we you haven't heard fairly. much about her in the story proper. We just kind of got some hints about her so far. Mm-hmm. So first they go talk to Victoria's mom. On the way through security, Kenzie's holographic form, I mean uh, something uh, that Kenzie is carrying, uh, <laughs> glitches the camera. Matt, I actually read about this theory on Reddit because I can do that Yay. now. Um, yeah, I guess the theory that she's either like an AI or not really there or whatever. And this is just like a hard light projection, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, that's possible, I guess. Like, in the, this is the world of parahumans. Just about anything is possible. But I remain unconvinced that that's what's going on here. I think, I think that she is, yes, she has cameras projecting stuff like her clothes could be a projection her costume could be a projection um she's got things projecting all over her body at probably all times yes but is she herself completely 100 percent just a projection um a hologram i i don't buy it i don't buy it at least not yet i could change my mind yeah it could, could be a red herring or he could want you to think it is anyway stop it stop yeah, it okay so Carol meets with them and performs a convincing simulacrum of pleased surprise to see Sveta. Yeah, that's Matt. You went right with the negative there. Matt, I don't think you like Carol very much. No, I'm pretty sure the, the narrator's bias point of view has turned me against Carol completely. I think I probably need to go back and read Carol's interlude just to balance it out. Yeah, yeah. We learn a bit about what she's up to, lobbying on behalf of the wardens, making sure that the organization fits with the government that that's being built. Yeah, uh, or if you know one word, to, one word to be inclined to be, let's say, paranoid. That then they're ensuring that the laws are written to make sure that they retain the the exact power that they desire. Yeah, not that I'm saying that's what's happening or anything, but no, no, that's not implied at all. So she offers to hook them up with a lower tier person who they can consult with, um, which is nice, and everything's going well. And then she blows it all. Okay, she said, "I'd like to invite your sister to a sit down." God, God damn it, Carol. God, God damn it. It's it's like, it's so, we, we specifically jump from her father's, how her father handled the situation to this to contrast them, right? And and this shows that she just doesn't get it. It's not even that she's bad at apologies. She doesn't even give one. Mm. She doesn't even apologize here. She seems completely unaware that the root of the, of the freak out was not like, Oh, I surprised you. Mm-hmm. It's like, so if I just do this, if I'm fully upfront with you about this, no, it's, it's, she's going through this trauma. Like she's just completely unaware of this seemingly. It's just like, she's not ready to see her sister, Carol. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing actually. It, it, and I'm sure no one can explain this to her either. Yeah. Yeah. So Victoria generously doesn't explode, but they do leave quickly. Sveta backs her up on her mom being crappy. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I, I like I like how this plays out. It's like, you were always sad when she didn't come. You were sad after she came anyway. Um, I like I like those details. And, and like she's like, well, I was always sad. And it's like, no, there's different kinds of sadness. This was different. And Sveta is very perceptive, and she picked up on that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but something else happens here that I think is important. The rest of the team comes to her defense, too, Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Tristan drops in this line about how family can be hard. Kenzie jumps in and agrees. And it gets me wondering if this if this is like showing like a kind of open welcoming of Victoria into the group proper that that like they were 
they shield each other from outside sources. That's what they do. And maybe now they're starting, they're really, instead of seeing her as that outside thing that they need to shield each other from, she's becoming part of, of the middle part of the group. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's probably is what's happening. I think they're starting to see her as, as one of them. Yeah. 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 So this is one of many scenes though, that I do like to go back and imagine from Carol's point of view. I know I was you know, pretending to be biased against her, but like, you can see from her head how it all makes sense to her. Right. Right. Like, hey, this conversation's going pretty well. Like, she came to see me. Um, she seems to be less angry now. This is like, this is a perfect time to bring up that thing that pissed her off last time. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I, in in her inner monologue, I imagine her thinking like, come on, Victoria, just just grow up and get over it. It's right. It's not that big a deal, which we, we know she thinks that basically, so. Right. And, and it, I mean, it's not too hard to read into the fact that like she showed up at her office to meet with her. And yes, Victor- from Victoria's perspective, she's doing this because she has to, because like she talked to her dad, her dad said to do it. Her mom's a link to the thing she needs. It's very easy to see from her mom's perspective to want to read into that, that she's here to try to bridge this gap with me. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's wrong, but it's, it's, not impossible to see her point of view on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. So next they head to Foresight. Um, I like this little touch that the lights change to indicate that the capes, uh, to indicate to the capes inside that outsiders are coming, so they should put their masks on. Yeah, that's fun little world-building detail that, of course, like makes complete like practical sense. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, that they would need some way to deal with this, and it just makes perfect sense. Right, yeah. So they run into some shepherds on their way up, and we recognize one of them. And you were right, Scott. The moon girl was Moonsong. And her behavior here does nothing to settle the debate of which of the two of them was really in the wrong. I mean, yeah, but like Moonsong fucking ready to throw down. <laughs> so right. it's not like it's not like a good look for her no, no. either way. No, no. I mean, it's I mean, she almost starts a fate, a cape fight in the hallway. Of the wardens, of the wardens, yeah. Uh, fun to imagine what would have happened, obviously, if Ashley had been with them. Uh, and she right. she accuses Tristan of being a manipulative sociopath who once ordered a hit on a teammate. And you know, Tristan, for his part, defends himself verbally. doesn't doesn't use powers at all, or even 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 try to. And uh, he even concedes and lets Byron out to speak for him. Yeah, I'm really curious what your takeaway from this interaction was because we still don't really know anything about Moonsong other than than her hatred of this guy goes way way deeper than we first thought um and and we know like we've been saying all episode perception colors how you see things so there there is there is very real chance that her perception of the events around Tristan were colored by her extreme dislike of him and that she's exaggerating or seeing differently the things that he did in the past but there's probably some some truth here. What what did you think? I mean, honestly, like my my assumption or my f- interpretation, I guess, is that is that everything she's saying is literally true. Like, I don't think she's lying, but I think that there's probably some kind of story that makes Tristan seem like not the villain in his own head, you know. And the fact that Byron is willing to sort of even stand up for him in, 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 a, in a way where, 
Like, you you don't get the sense that Byron is, like, lying to support him. You get the sense that Byron is legitimately... Um, thinks that Moonsong is going too far and being too hard on him. Yeah, yeah. So... I, I agree, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's very it's very interesting that we're we're maintaining this level of suspicion on Tristan, which is neither being exacerbated nor um, uh, dissolved. It's right. If anything, we're just more worried, but with less clear reason. Yeah. So the foresight guys show up and they break up the awkward standoff. Tristan offers to stay out of the picture to avoid pissing off Moonsong. And we get our longest stretch of Byron talk. Byron can't help but be critical of Tristan, but he also says that he'll be a terrific hero, probably. That's a, that's a ring endorsement if I've ever seen one. Yep. Um, and they basically ask Byron, like, okay, Byron, if, if you're not up for this, then we're not going to do it. We, we need your buy-in. And then Byron's like, no, Byron said he seemed to flounder for a moment. He looked at me. Fuck. He didn't break the, that eye contact with me as he said it. My eyebrow went up. Don't let me get in the way of you giving these guys their chance, Byron said. Yeah, so this is what we were talking about with Byron kind of going with the flow a little bit here, right? Like he has a chance to get what he wants here and shut everything down. And he chooses not to. And that, and the fact that he looks at Victoria, he maintains eye contact with Victoria as he says it is very interesting. He's As he says the line, he's technically talking to Foresight. They are the one asking him the question, mm-hmm. but he is staring at her. He is talking to her. And we know that he, like, gave her the once-over the first time he saw her, mm-hmm. right? Like, he, he definitely eye-fucked her. Um, so, so we know there's a level of attraction there. So, so Matt, did Byron just say yes to this thing because it's a, it's a pretty girl? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it, so. It's it's a bit more complicated than that. He is like we said, he is a go with the flow guy. He doesn't he doesn't want to be the person that stands between people and what they want. But yeah, I mean, I that's definitely part of it, right? He is interested in Victoria. Yeah, he, he, I think he would be sad if he didn't get to see her anymore. I think that's yeah. that's kind of the simplest way of phrasing it. Yeah. It is interesting that he doesn't, the way he phrases that too is very kind of clever, right? He says, don't let me get in the way, get in the way of get you giving these guys a chance. He doesn't say yes. He just kind of abstains. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to say no is not a yes. Yeah, right. Going with the flow, like you said. Right. So, so the two groups discuss the details of the arrangement. The Misfit Toys will surveil Hollow Point and sell the data that they obtain to Foresight and if appropriate, the two groups will join together to crack the nut. I like this euphemism of crack the nut because they're basically saying, like, engage in a violent attack. Yeah. Um, but but uh, People might die. Yeah, right. Definitely interesting that Foresight had already poked at Hollow Point. Hollow Point had called Tattletail, and Tattletail had successfully convinced Foresight not to meddle. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we had a arc full of information about why we're worried about these teams and now we're now we're going to get to lay out in front of us all the obstacles that are in their way and that's a big one this is a professionally organized sponsored funded team ah we can't there's nothing we can do here we can't handle this yeah Uh, we can't make progress that's not worth our time oh but here's a group of heavily damaged children yeah yeah let's do it yeah 
it's probably going to work out great. Yeah, there's one level of separation between the blowback and us, and that's good. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. Yeah, so now we learn more about what kinds of resources Hollow Point has. Uh, they have a bunch of speedrunners and time manipulators. We've got secondhand who can sweep the whole area, searching every nook and cranny in presumably a very tiny interval of time. And Final Hour, who I guess makes banked time streams. And we get our, our uh, from Victoria, fucking time manipulators. Which, do you think that's going to be her fucking tinkers? I hope so. I hope so, too. I love time manipulators. Yeah. Victoria and Dennis apparently did not get along. I guess. Yeah. Um, and then they also have Bitter Pill, a biotinker with them. Oh, good. Biotinkers. We love them. Mm-hmm. Everything they do always ends up well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but like like we said, the end of this chapter and the end of this arc proper, not including the interlude, serves to remind us just how heavily the deck is stacked against our heroes. How do you infiltrate a team when they have all these things, when they can manipulate time and they have thinkers that can detect this stuff and, and they have like like that banked time stream thing where they can check all this stuff out? Like how can they not immediately get caught and it's it's like they just like we're doing it yeah we're we're doing it it's gonna work out great guys yeah i mean this is one of those times where i'm just i'm pretty sure i'm just gonna have egg on my face because it's kind of like how you don't necessarily see how the undersiders powers are synergistic until you see them fighting um yeah but i really don't see how these guys powers are synergistic the the, the misfit toys like i don't so. There's going to be there's going to be a way. Yeah, I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, I especially for the type of mission they're about to go on. Yeah. I just So this is we're do, we're doing this. Yeah, we're plunging in. Um all right, and that's that wraps up this this arc and we move on into the interlude. Yeah. So this is this is this is amazing. This is my favorite chapter in the book so far by far um and i'm hesitant to talk too much about it here at the top but i think it's important to note that we do basically jump into a new genre right we we've we're not in horror we're not in science fiction we're we're truly rooted in in fantasy through most of the genre and we hit a lot of the um fantasy tropes and it's incredible and i i want to take time at the end of this whole thing to look at that and look how this is a a fantasy story in mini form and how well it, it executes on that. But uh, I guess let's get into the details first. Absolutely. So our character Dot slinks through an abandoned supermarket on Bet. She crawls along the stacks of goods rather than the floor. It's safer there, she thinks, minimizing contact with any metal, even the shelving. Ah, uh, yes. Our young hero and adventurer Dot on her average daily scavenging mission that's just living in her normal world. Yep. And nothing's going to go wrong. Nope. She can't read well, which implies she can read a bit. She finds some vitamins and starts chomping on them. Then a loud noise stops her. Some people have arrived. She listens in as they talk about which consumables to scavenge. That's fun. That's a fun little detail there. Um, yeah. Take things that aren't natural because they last longer. Yeah. Uh, yeah I like which that. is absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. If we're ever in a zombie apocalypse, Matt, we will know what to do now. Yeah, I know. Uh, this book's going to save, save our lives. 
The dot uh, dot watched as the younger man jogged across the floor to what um, what was almost certainly his imminent demise. Just love this line so much. So then, machines, large robots, burst out from the surroundings, crushing and maiming Jackson and his mentor. Other machines are hidden in plain sight amid the store merchandise. The rest of the humans are quickly, quickly dispatched by hidden weapons and then by gas. A cape eventually arrives and starts blasting the robots. And we get this glimpse. The entire area behind the fridges was gone. Green flashing lights, wires, computers, and metal twisted into shapes that helped it to provide a framework. Machines were working slowly and steadily to refine and develop things. In the opposite corner of the building, the hero climbed behind a stack of cans. A spray of flechettes punctured the paper with no resistance. There was no tin to the cans, only the labels and the haphazardly perched tops. The machines had already collected everything and then put things back together so it looked like it hadn't been touched. They looked like, and then a skip a bit later where it shows the, the canisters of machine stuff being sprayed around. They looked like veins of metal and rock. In weeks and months, they would hatch, revealing the machinery that had built itself within. So the reason I pulled all this out is because it's a nightmare. I, I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens in nightmares. Everything is hollowed out and replaced by malevolent facsimiles. It's just so <laughs> so viscerally horrifying. Yes, um, yeah, so this hero who's been darted tries to stumble away, and, and Dot follows as well, picking up a box cutter as she goes. Yeah, th- I mean, th- this machine army was hinted at in the prologue, right? But I t- never imagined something as horrid and terrifying as what we get here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I've genuinely been thinking about this chapter ever since I read it, particularly the machine <laughs> army stuff, but yeah. <laughs> um, so the, her- the heroine gets snagged by harpoons, and uh, Dot thinks, blow it up, lose the hand. She realized she was rooting for the heroine despite herself. I, I just like that because it kind of makes you connect with Dot a little bit more because she's been right. she's been hiding, but but like the fact that she's kind of on the good human side makes you like her. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, Dot approaches the heroine and jumps to land on her shoulder, and we realize that she's tiny, the size of a woman's head. She's holding the box cutter with her tail. She's speckled with dots, and you're getting all these details about her appearance. And my first thought was. K sixty three, but then she asks the heroine where her king is, and that's where it clicks for me. I was proud not to have to have something spelled out for me for once. And Matt, you said on last week's podcast that was on the podcast, right? Yeah, I can't remember. It was. You said you wanted a chapter from the point of view of one of Nilbox's creations. You said that I did, and that was on the Tuesday before the chapter <laughs> came out. Well, Matt. You have powers. I, I guess. I guess so. You have wild bow command powers. I, I, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to say that out loud. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was this was a really cool moment. I, I love. I love how this reveal is played out to us. I love the small hints. Like there's there's small hints that this person is not just a normal human, even though you don't see it at first. Like she can't read. Um, there's a beat where she like has to stand on a case of water bottles, and. Like, you're like, well, I guess, like, a normal-sized person could... That would be a little weird, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, the hints are there. It's just you don't connect the dots until you're like, oh, holy shit. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, to track your interpretation. Because, like, at first, I think I probably thought she was, like, some kind of, you know, street urchin child who was surviving in the in the ravaged wasteland of Bet. And then I revised that a couple of different ways until I finally, you know, until you finally figured it out. 
Yeah, yeah. So the heroine um, asks Dot to tell the humans that the machines are as far north as they are. She tells Dot that her king is at the warden's HQ. Dot then kills the woman using the box cutter and drinks her blood as she dies. <laughs> Dot's version of mercy killing is like metal as fuck. Yeah. It's interesting that this horf, you know, horrifying killing is not actually something that turns us against Dot because we are pretty convinced that this woman is going to die horribly anyway. Yeah. We skip also, some... she's Dot. Yeah. We skip some time and Dot has stowed away on a train into Gimmel. As she thinks about how risky this is, we learn a bit about her society. Um, just, just for flavor, Black Spot would be left in charge. He'd been unwell lately. And he might be too unwell to lead their group. He was 13, and that made him old. And after their discussion, her communicating in broken English and gesture, and him communicating in chirp, he'd agreed. She suspected he'd made the decision because he hoped she would bring their king back somehow. It was Black Spot's only chance of being recycled and made into new life. Lump would be second in command. Lump had been injured a year ago after running into humans. He barely moved now. When he died, the group would be more free to move but they wouldn't leave him behind until then. Lump was one of the only big ones that were left. Um, yeah. So we're painting the picture of this dying civilization, basically. These peoples, they've been invaded. There are robot armies in, invading their area and, and humans as well, and they're dying out, and they have but one hope, mm-hmm. but one hope to become the land that they once knew. Yeah, yeah. And that's a young adventurer named dot that's right and you you have such empathy for these nilbog creatures who right you barely even considered as like persons in in worm which i think was you know obviously there there were reasons for that but yeah it's very easy to, to empathize with their plight yeah well they didn't ask to be made into sentient flesh monsters right yeah so she overhears neither did i <laughs> Uh, that's good so there she's still on the train and she overhears who we recognize to be rat catcher telling the customs people that there's a stowaway uh and also of course fucking with them a bit so she's mission impossibling it now on this train so uh dot binds up little robot that they send after her and then she tries to flee rat catcher corners her and engages her in conversation dot tells her about the machine army's movements and rat catcher is sad to learn that burnish has died who is a person we did not know. Um, Correct. I I looked that up because that name sounded very familiar to me. Yeah. No, but I, it wasn't. No, in fact, um, I, I know someone who thought that it was Brandish, which would have been much sadder. Oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ratcatcher offers to help her out, offers to let her ride in a pocket and get something to drink. But Dot escapes when she sees an opening getting into a vent. She then has to fight off some giant rats, which were very likely sent by Ratcatcher. Uh, we skip forward a little bit further, and she makes her way into the warden's headquarters, injured by the rats. She dresses her wounds with colorful children's band-aids, which is just so <laughs> sweet. So adorable. And then she sneaks into the building. A commotion gives her a chance to sneak from the fourth floor to the fifth floor. Thanks, Moonsong. Yeah, which is really the first hint we have that these events are happening concurrently, right? Uh, I mean, I don't even think, I think that's only a hint in retrospect. Like, for for, for me, it was like, now we know that these informations, that these, these events are happening concurrently, so we infer that if there was a commotion, it was probably what just happened with those other guys. 
Yeah, that's, okay. that's a guess, really, but it makes sense to me. So she comes across Riley and Amelia discussing her king. Riley convinces Amelia to join her in her visit with him. Dot follows them, sneaking through vents, and finds Nilbog, dubbing Amelia the Red Queen, which is not at all ominous and heavy with terrible connotations. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the characterization of Rink here. He's a bit more self-aware, I think, than when we left him. He's been in captivity for two years. There's more irony to his whimsy. The queen metaphors are more overtly clever and meaningful, I think, because now he knows that she's not really a queen. Life isn't really a fairy tale. And he's saying he's saying wise things that can kind of be taken both ways instead of just kind of asinine things. Like, a queen can be easily checkmated if she doesn't act like a queen. You can move in any direction. If you don't like what happens when you use overt power, you, then use position. And, and he says, uh, the fact that you're a queen affords you power by default. If you stand in the right places, things will change as a result. Use that. Recognize it. Things may start going the way you hope they might. Yeah, I... This is really interesting. I, I agree. And like Rink always came off like a a guy living inside a fantasy. It's why the story is playing in fantasy tropes because its main character, its point of view character was created and lived in that fantasy. But he is more more awake now, more aware. The the queen labels are more symbolic than they are literal, and I don't know how I feel about this, Matt. Yeah. Amy being influenced by Nilbog of all people is uh, it's troubling. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> lots of uh, potential in this story direction, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So Alice and the Red Queen depart, and Dot sneaks in. Nilbog welcomes her. He's he's happy to see her, and he recognizes her as having been birthed by Polka and not created by him, which is interesting. I don't think we knew that these creatures could could give birth. Um, he feeds her some tea, but he tells her to leave to take care of the others. At first, she won't accept this, but then she sees in his face that he truly is broken. It's heartbreaking. This whole, this adventure, this quest, Matt. Yeah, he failed. Failed to save her king. As Dot leaves, the pain turns to black anger, and she decides she'll take a spore of the machine army and bring it into the heart of Gimmel. But on her way out, she runs into the Red Queen. Panacea then heals her wounds, and Dot wraps herself around Panacea's dotted arm. Panacea admits that she's stuck here on the stairs because Victoria is downstairs and she needs to stay away. And uh, because she's just delved uh, Dot with her power, she she says, And that anger of yours? What are we going to do about that? And then after after a few moments of Dot sort of accepting this this powerful witch queen and, and... sort of we see her decide she's going to become her her familiar if you will panacea continues i'll help you with your anger if you help me with mine yeah so my when i first read this my take on this this came off as ominous and i think i saw a lot of people felt the same way that that these ending words are ominous but if you sit here and really think about it if you think about what this means I think we're being influenced by Victoria, Matt. <laughs> I think I think Victoria's opinion of Amy has influenced people to think of her as this great oncoming threat when we haven't really seen any actual objective evidence that that is going to occur. I'll help you with your anger if you help me with mine. Why is that ominous? That is 
I, I see that you are an angered, troubled person. I have anger, too. Of course she has anger. Everyone has anger. I am looking for a way to get rid of that. I'll help you with yours if you help me with mine. Yeah, I mean, we, we, knew, we knew Amy had anger. Right. And, and it's understandable. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I like that point. I mean, I think... I think it's it's only it's only ominous in context of the fact that she's like sitting in the stair sitting on the stairs miserable after just having talked to Nilbog and Bonesaw, um, talking about having this festering anger inside her. It's it's sort of like mm-hmm. in a tropey sense, it's it's ominous, but but like on a human level, I agree with you completely. Yeah, well, and and that's I, I that I guess segues us to talk about this as a fantasy story. Yeah, because uh, like. If you look, if you just Google the hero's journey, you probably know it because I think most people know what the hero's journey looks yeah, like. At least, but if at you least Google, yeah. yeah, if you Google the hero's journey, Dot absolutely goes through the hero's journey. But to the, I mean, we have almost a literal threshold as she travels to a different land mm-hmm. in in a it's a different universe. Yes, but she travels to a distant land. She meets new people and and tricks them and and battles a rat army she sneaks into the enemy's castle to save her king yeah there's there's the call which she refuses first and then accepts right right exactly i mean this is like it's playing in these tropes but it's subverting them too because then we get we get to the payoff moment we get to the moment where she's gotten to her king she finds her king and he's not her king anymore yeah that's he's 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 not that person anymore and we we build up this fantasy adventure story and and if if you look the the writing is a little different here too like it's not wild bow's typical type of writing it's it's much it's it's hard to explain how it's exactly different but it is you can tell he's going for a certain kind of like tone with it like the 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 wandering adventurer the the noble knight type of tone with how the prose is dealt and yeah i i love it so much yeah i, I agree i mean the, the stakes for dot are really higher than any other character you know she's it, it, she, she is in a much worse situation as a character her, her her people are dying the whole world is hostile against her she's being basically crushed between like starvation and the machine army and the humans mm-hmm. and, and and not only that but they're all just dying out because they don't have their king to sort of replenish their their bodies with his power right and and she's she's desperate she's more desperate than than we've seen a character in a long time um and i think that all kind of elevates it to this level of epicness um yeah yeah it, it would be interesting to to analyze it and talk about you know see where exactly that um almost like nightly like you said um fantasy tone is is creeping in because because i agree mm-hmm. with you on that yeah and it, it we have to look at how it at the turn though we have to look at at it has this tone throughout and then the truth comes and she finds herself lost without purpose she had she had one singular purpose to be to be the hero the hero's journey she was going to do it and that failed her and she's now kind of lost and finds another lost person and we don't know what's going to happen here it 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 could be ominous it could just be 
paranoia, um, as as we see mentioned a lot. I, 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 the word paranoia is getting brought up the longer we talk about this book. This is going to be a very central theme of this book, I think. Yeah, um, it's but, interesting. I didn't realize that before we started talking about this chapter, this arc, but um, the... Um, the um the the one interesting thing is I don't think she finishes the hero's journey in this chapter. No, because it well, I mean like it depends on what you look at. It it depends on if you think that getting to Nilbog breaks her from the journey and she's now out of the tropey fantasy world or if she's just continuing along it and her king not being her king anymore was just one of the tribulations on her way to complete the journey. It depends on what you think. And I'm not, I'm not convinced one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, I think I would be, I think I would see it as valid and exciting either way, honestly, but yeah, I, I probably, my gut, my gut reaction would be that her hero's journey will continue. Um, if only in the sense that, we want to see her have a care, uh, have a satisfying character development. Um, and a satisfying way of doing that would be to continue along this trajectory. But like you said, right. it's sort of, it's sort of thrown her off of the typical plan anyway. So it probably won't adhere to the tropes. You know, right. But, but Amy could help her people, right? Yeah. Like out of anyone that's left, she would have to get like she can't create the biological matter herself, so she'd have to use other things. But yeah, no, or she she could even alter them to not require that anymore. She's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, this is that is one way in which it's ominous, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Possibly, I mean, Amy also did just just save them from her from Dot taking a a robot spore and bring it back back into Gimmel and ending the world via giant robot army. So, yeah. Yeah. So good job, Amy. Yeah. Thanks for inadvertently doing that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think this is, it's so fun. This was such a fun chapter to read. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. It's, it's different. And then we, we tie it back into our story proper and goes right back to Amy, our character, which this, this Victoria Amy conflict, it's coming, Matt. I'm not sure when we were talking about that offline earlier today, but this, this confrontation is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. And, and, and as we were talking about there, we, we, we were very uncertain about what form that would take or when that would happen or anything like that. But, uh, it's definitely being played out. Yep. Yep. It's exciting. It's very exciting. That's, that's, that's arc three. Yeah, that's arc three. All right. So a little bit of name game before we wrap up. Um, glare, I think we, we should talk about a little bit. So on the one hand, to glare at someone is to, to give them a threatening look. We see a bit of that. We see mm-hmm. Moonsong gives a glare to Tristan. Ashley gives a glare to everyone. Yeah. Uh, there's probably, you know, uh, Carol. Uh, Victoria gives a glare to Carol. I mean, I mean, really, you could apply this to almost any arc, frankly, because everyone's always having conflict. But um there's also the, the the idea that you can't see something clearly because the sun is reflecting off of it. So if someone is maybe not seeing something as clear, clearly as they should. That's the one I that's the one I took it to be. Yeah, I forgot about the I forgot about the the stare one, and I went right for the yeah the the glare mm-hmm. obstructing view of something. Mm-hmm. I think that one probably fits better, honestly. 
I think it's no. I think it's both. Mm. I think you know it's wild bow. It's, it's both. both. Yeah, yeah, right. It's always it's always both. <laughs> um, much like Tattletale, doing multiple things at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like dot. You know, dot automatically has a connotation of something small. Um, yeah, something easily overlooked. Um, and of course, this and, this joke that dot is the the offspring of polka polka dot. I mean, that's yeah. Pretty, pretty Which again, like dot was birthed. So that's a joke that that these these nobot creations made themselves Mm -hmm. like so they like that's reinforcing that these are living Mm -hmm. conscious beings Mm -hmm. that like which is a very a very i think important aspect of this whole thing that these things have every right to live that anything else does isn't dot short for dorsey (laughs) i think so So, i'm gonna have to google it dot is not in kansas anymore gonna go with that um red queen is uh a bunch of things it's that that's she's an alice in wonderland right so there's, yes, there's that yes but also the red queen is like a, a theory of evolution about how like animals can compete into like a terrible equilibrium that sucks for everyone uh which is which which i don't know if that was an intended meaning but i like that meaning I mean, let's. The Red Queen is the antagonist of Alice in Wonderland. Right. Yeah. So let's let's make sure that that's oh, known. Yes, yes. that's important. She's the antagonist and 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 is a major obstacle to Alice. Yes. And then I uh, the the final name game names would be uh the the uh, time manipulator capes secondhand Minuteman and final hour, um, which. We we don't really know what they do actually, so maybe we should save really doing a name game for them until we really see what they can do. But I just like the um, I just think they're great cape names. Honestly, just kind of wanted to mention them. No, and it's good that they build they build off each other like that. Yeah, secondhand Minuteman, final hour. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah well, maybe we'll circle back to them. We made a better understanding of of how how it works. Yeah, that's all the names I pulled out this week. Um, so yeah, so that's all we've got for you this week on We've Got Ward. Remember that we appreciate your feedback and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at mordinadot. Um, I will be continuing the live tweet. I will, I have decided I'm going to do it here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to put a big warning on the first tweet in the thread that says, this is spoilers for, um, 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 whatever arc I'm on. And then I'm just going to continue to going down that. So it's not going to be at like set times anymore because like, we're not, um, going through, uh, we're not going through a whole arc at, at the same time. However, uh, I will, I'm, I'm still going to do it. That's the main point. I don't know why I can't talk anymore, but I'm still going to do the live tweet yeah. in, in some way, in some way or form. It'll be different, but I'm still going to do it. That's that's cool. And I, I don't think it matters too much if it's not at the same time, because it's, it's really just as fun to kind of read through your live tweets after you've finished as it is to keep mm-hmm. up with them. Um, yeah, yeah. Much less distracting also. Um, yeah. So if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And thank you to all of you who did go over to YouTube and click subscribe. 
uh, that was that, that's really nice. We're a lot closer to our goal there, and we really really yeah, appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, thanks guys, thanks so much. Um, as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week on the main feed, Michael and I reviewed the final film in the Maze Runner series, The Death Cure, and uh, it's not it's not good. <laughs> See why. By listening to that podcast, we also, of course, do talk about some news, Oscar nominations, and do some mini reviews of the things we've been watching. Check it out. Yeah, that's right, Scott. And if you like any of our shows and want to support them, consider donating a dollar uh, a month to Patreon or whatever you can afford. Uh, this week, we have new patrons, uh, uh, two Kryptonians, Brent upgraded to $20 and Kifu upgraded to $20. Well, thank you guys so much for that. Yeah, it looks like, Matt, these these patrons took advantage of our new bonus at the $20 level because starting this week, we are offering a new reward at that level. Basically, we are allowing our patrons at that level to pick something for us to do a show on, and we will do a episode of the Daily Planet podcast on whatever they picked. So for you for you anime lovers out there, this is, uh, this is your moment. Yeah, this is your opportunity, guys. I, I have to watch it. We're doing one this Monday, our first one, and uh, the person did not pick anime, so bullet dodged first time. Yeah. So well, yeah, can't hold up for too long. No, it will not. It will not. So yeah, as always, uh, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon page and donate to him as well. Uh, it's his world. We're just playing in it. Yeah, and if you can't afford to donate right now, uh, that's absolutely okay. You can instead go on a massive quest to sneak into another universe, hitch a ride on the enemy's train, infiltrate their very stronghold, break into the prison cell in the tallest tower, walk up to the captive royal being held there, and whisper in their ear, have you have you tried out We've Got Ward yet? Or you could just head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. You can be like Ortha... Orta Therox, Orta Therox, who gives us five stars and says, I devoted a considerable amount of time to studying the art of writing in 2017. <laughs> us too. Uh, this podcast really has been a high note in my understanding of how a well-structured narrative works. Subscribed when it was still part of the Daily Planet and been backing on Patreon for many, many months. Been totally worth it. Interested to see how the real-time aspects change it with Ward. You too have got this. Thanks so much, Orda. We really do appreciate those kind words and everything else uh, you've you've done and and said for us, um, especially with the, the with the support as we transition to this new show format. I I'd be lying if I said I wasn't pretty nervous about how things are going to go next week, but uh, I'm excited about it too. Yeah, I feel I'm definitely you. excited. Yeah, feel you there. All right, that's it for the show this week. Next week, Scott and I are officially in the live read territory, and we'll be covering. Arc 4 Shade, chapters 4.1 through 4.3. See you guys next week on a new episode of We've Got Ward. Mm-hmm.